Good morning and welcome to the other faces. Welcome to another Scraps and Scrolls and Winds of Winter preview. Today is Barristan, both one and two extra treat for you guys. Hello, how are you? I am your Jolly Green Giant here again on the island to take you through another, like I say, two whole chapters of the Winds of Winter, or at least the previews we have of them. So welcome back, it's so very good to see you here again. I am speaking to you from a, well it's trying to be spring here in England. It's a bit cloudy right now, but it has been sunny throughout the day, although it's still pretty cold. We can't quite break over into spring, so I need all of you to send your karmic energy, whatever gets the sun out, send it my way please. More sun, more energy, more other faces which is very, very good for today because it just so happens, wow, it seems like the sun has been microscoped onto us. We've got all the energy because depending on when you're listening to this, if you're listening to it right when it comes out, I'm speaking to you from a very, a very important day here in the aisle, the day of three, the rule of three, whatever you want to call it, it's announcement day. Now, if you're not on Twitter or you're not on the Patreon, you might have no idea what I'm talking about. Don't worry, I will explain in a second. We've got a little bit of extra juice for you just before we get into Barristan 1 and 2. But of course, before that, let's give our thanks. Firstly, to Aziz Nashea, always over there at History of Westeros, doing Valor Aridis, doing great work. You don't need me to tell you, I know you're already there. Anyway, but it's good to give them a shout out. And we also need to give thanks to our wonderful, wonderful patrons, all of whom are so very much appreciated, especially when you get in contact, which you do all the time. It's always great fun to talk to you. And let's give some names, shall we? Because your generosity, your awesomeness needs to be recognized and appreciated. So let's give some special thanks to Lomas Nightrider, survivor of the Yeen Sleepover. Grizzly Meadows, a new member of the Jade Branches tier. You've moved up a tier. Thank you so much, Grizzly. That is even more appreciated than normal. That is just great to see. Hope you enjoy your time here. Thank you to Glenn T, to Aegon the Sixth, to Lord Commander Namian Darklin, to KM, and of course to Archmaester Dune, healer of the Lesser Foxes. Things are opening up around the world. Lots of people are getting better. Don't you dare forget to thank all of your healthcare professionals that have got us through this in the first place. Thank, thank you everyone both for that the more important thing and also for supporting the other faces which is still a cool thing now what am i on about what is the rule of three the day of three well patrons they've actually known what's up for a couple of days now for like nearly a week because they're special they're extra cool they get to know things early but also they learned some extra stuff today just to keep them satisfied for the rest of you out there well if you've been following on twitter i've been telling you all day something big is coming actually something more than that something windy is coming something welcome is coming and something watchful is coming yes patrons have known for a while but here i can share with you the results of that google form that so many of you were kind enough to fill out and some decision making by me and well here we are basically this is what i'm telling you we're at a new era of the isle of faces we've already started it a little bit by transitioning into wins preview chapters but well it goes further than that doesn't it because yes scraps and scrolls will continue First, with the Winds of Winter preview chapters, then most likely with Duncan Egg. There's a little teaser for you. But the bigger changes, and the much bigger changes, are two new episode formats. But I can't even wait to tell you the much bigger, bigger part is that the Isle of Faces is gaining a co-host. 
Sound the fireworks, ring the bells. What crazy news is this? Yes, I am going to be joined by someone here. Not for all episodes, just for certain types. And maybe not all the time. We'll see how schedules work out and all that stuff. That's still to come. But at least in the interim, yes, someone is going to be joining me. You will no longer only have to suffer through my boring, monotone voice. You'll get someone else to listen to in certain intervals. And there'll be some conversation and things will be quite different. So this is incredibly exciting of course this is i guess the biggest change we've ever had here on the io i can't even begin to explain now i must say for now if you're not a patron then unfortunately for you you just have to wait to find out some more details i'm not going to tell you who i'm not going to tell you what's going on i'm just here to tease you a bit i'm going to give you the headline so first headline first rule of three someone new is coming to the other faces something welcome this way comes so that's that's pretty cool But don't worry, you don't have to wait too long to find things out. If you are listening to this on the Thursday of release, the 8th of April here, you only got to wait till the weekend. Then I'll put up a short, like 20 minute post maybe, going into further details where you'll learn who the hell this person is and you'll learn more about the different episode formats. So hang on till then, keep biting your nails, keep on the edge of your seat, then come back to the aisle at the weekend, learn some details and let off the fireworks with us. So that's number one. That's just number one. As if that's not big enough. That is the first piece of news. Second piece of news. Something windy this way comes. That's right. The first of these new episode formats. Something again completely new on the aisle. Something I've discussed with you and many of you gave amazing feedback for. You're very keen for. So hopefully you should be happy. Is the 100 questions of the winds of winter. This is the new episode format. This is what our co-host will mainly be about, but other things as well. This is going to be going through those big questions. Well, I don't really need to say much more than that. I've already explicitly told you what it's about, and I'll do it again at the weekend. But that is the first. So again, lots of conversation, lots of chances for you to get involved with your own questions, and just a bit more creativity and something new on the aisle. So again, very very exciting. But here's the third, and perhaps the most exciting well no the co-host is the most exciting but still this is pretty cool it's one i'm incredibly passionate about and i really look forward to i've really kind of got to stop myself from going into too deep of an explanation i've got to save that for the weekend the third and final piece of news the second format change the second episode change we're having well i've already told you something watchful this way comes i'm here to tell you scraps and screens is a thing we will here on the aisle be going back all the way back to the beginning of game of thrones back to season one episode one lift the gate of the wall there we can see waymar and garrod and will out they go that's the first scene and we'll be going right from there to the very end to when Jon snow does the same thing at the end of season eight and i can't tell you how excited i am because most of you all know i adore the show i adore it it's what got me here in the first place the same for many and many of you it's what made our fandom what it is and i've been wanting to do this for a long long time so we're basically going to be doing scraps and scrolls for the show we're going to delve right deep into the story and my new co-host will likely be joining us for at least part of that as well (sighs) i'm gonna have to stop myself because i want to just explain it all what i will say right now is don't worry 
We're not changing into a show-only podcast. So if you're not a fan of the show, which is completely fine by me, by the way, that's why we're doing things concurrently. You're still going to have scraps and scrolls. You're still going to have a hundred questions in the winds of winter. You've got plenty of book-only stuff to satisfy you. This is why we're covering all bases. The Isle of Faces is a place for all of the fandom. From whatever subsection you come from, you've got a place here. So we're providing for everybody. And at the same time, something else to mention is just because I love it doesn't mean I can't recognise flaws. We're not going to be ignoring anything. We'll look at the warts and all. Don't worry about that. I'll go into it further at the weekend, but I'm very, very excited. And it's time so brilliantly, isn't it? Because it's the 10-year anniversary, like, next week. So scraps and screens, everybody, right back all the way to the beginning, 73 episodes, preppers and reviews. We'll have guests on, probably the same for the 100 questions as well. The mind is blown. There you go. There's your news. See if you can recover from that. Oh, yeah, that's just the teaser. It's not even explained at all. New co host, 100 questions, scraps, and screens. It's a big, big old day on the aisle. It's very, very exciting. It's, it's important stuff because the end of scraps and scrolls, I didn't know if we want to keep going. It's a lot of hard work. We're going all in. I'll tell you that right now. So it's great to have you here. I hope you're as excited as I am. Please let me know if you are. Shout this from the rooftops. If I was ever going to ask you to start sharing stuff and make your feelings known, this is now. Like this post. Retweet it. Comment on it. Tell me about it. We want to know. I want you to get excited about the host and the episodes and everything else. If you love the aisle, tell the world. Tell the world right now. Please do. Okay, now I'm just going to have to take a few minutes to get my breath back here. I mean, we could have made that the whole episode, couldn't we? Just talking about that big news. And again, that's just the headlines. I'm not even supposed to be going into details. So let's realign. We'll get to talk about that a little bit later, as excited as I am. We'll save that. Save it. For right now, we've still got a job to do. We've still got scraps and scrolls to get through. And lucky us today, we are returning to a really, really big part of these preview chapters, a really, really big part of this section of the series, Barristan Selmy, who we spent so much time with at the end of Dance of Dragons. Don't forget that final Barristan chapter in the uh, four and a half episode clincher for Dance of Dragons. Ah, what didn't we talk about in that section of the podcast? What didn't we cover in the Battle of Fire? Well, turns out there's plenty more to discover. And yes, lucky you, we're having two for one today. We're sneaking them all in, Barristan one and two, all in one episode. I mean, how lucky can you get? Now, there's a reason for this. Mainly is because, like last week with Tyrion, we've got one transcript written down, written out for us. We've got one summary. This time it is Barristan one, which has the written text, then Barristan 2 has a summary, but to be honest, you're really not losing anything. We've got probably just as much to say about Barristan 2 as Barristan 1. There's a lot to say in general, and I mean, well, I'm not going to repeat myself about this character because I've gone on about him so much in the past, about his worth, about why he's a cool character to read, about what he means to this situation going on in the Marine, how he's brought it about, to be fair, everything that could happen. We've spoke about a lot of it before, but we're going to speak about a lot of it today as well. And to be honest, I don't think I'm going to hinder you any further. I think we can probably just go straight through into looking at Barristan 1 because there is generally a lot to cover. We really do get a lot out of these two chapters. So we can have some crossover of Tyrion as well. We can remember that tension, that promise of something really, really coming on the periphery of our vision about to explode before us. We get that same build up, but we also get the explosion today. So we really are rewarded. There's lots more Battle of Fire talk to be done about the battle itself, about the aftermath, possible futures and these different characters about to meet. Just the sheer size of this event 
in A Song of Ice and Fire. There's plenty to get to. I say we start right now. Let's get down to the aisle. Even with all our excitement about everything else, let's talk some Barristan 1. So like last week, something we can still do, something we do still control, is looking at the length, at least for Barristan 1. And today it's a short one. This chapter registers at 3,245 words in length, which is far shorter than any of Barry's four dance chapters. The shortest of those was 4,110, but you really get the sense of this being a, a preview chapter, an uncompleted beginning that will definitely have more added to it later on, probably more so than we got of that second Tyrion chapter that we looked at last time. Perhaps that's why it was released as a readout summary instead of a transcript originally, which I'll get back to in a minute. Before that, just on the note of shorter chapters, it's worth noting that during the Battle of the Blackwater, which remains our best comparison for a battle this size, both Sansa and Tyrion had incredibly short chapters as well, registering in the mid-2000 range. Tyrion just squeaks over 3000 in his last chapter of the sequence, so it's vastly different to normal. Battle chapters do tend to be like that. They are shorter to keep with the pacing and the action, especially of multiple POVs, like we had then, like we'll have in this Battle of Fire. So perhaps that explains Barristan 1's length and says no, there won't be that much change overall, actually it will stay similar. So there's two schools of thought. Though I suppose we should also note that chapters in general were just much shorter in Clash than by the time we got to Dance. These preview chapters, so far, we're not that far into them, but the ones we've looked at, they have been shorter than Dance, but I wouldn't let that sway any ideas about the Winds of Winter not following the trend of longer chapters. But then again, with more POVs and more chapters overall, who could say? Maybe the trend will reverse. And just to throw another wedge into that talk of the Blackwater, Davos, remember, is right there in the middle of Sansa and Tyrion with a 6,000 word chapter. But of course, he only had the one before he ended up sinking beneath the waterline. Sansa had three Blackwater chapters and Tyrion had two, and if you add their respective Blackwater word counts together, they are pretty near 6,000 as well. So that's actually some nice structuring from George there. Like I said a moment ago, this was originally a readout summary and was then delivered later on as a full transcript a few months afterwards, all the way back in 2013. I think that is the case anyway. I can't claim to be as plugged into the meta side as some others are. I wasn't involved way back when and some of you could probably teach me a few things, but I think that is the case. And I believe as well that both Barristan chapters 1 and 2, or at least excerpts from them, were read out at the same con. Barristan 1 specifically was then included as a special preview chapter in printed copies of A Dance of Dragons later on in 2013, so it became a little bit more official. As for Barristan 2, we've been left with only the fan summaries, like we were with Tyrion 1. So we've actually got a reversal from what we were working with last week. For Tyrion, here was a summary and then an actual transcript. We've got it the other way around this time. But what I will say here and now is that the fan summary for Barristan 2 is really, really detailed and is very, very good. And we can get more than a few big clues about what that battle is going to look like, so no worries there. Before we head into the text of Barristan 1, I will say that there's going to be a lot more crossover this time around than with Tyrion, because we spoke about Barristan so much after his final chapter in that four and a half hour episode to finish A Dance of Dragons. We had probably close to an hour just talking about the Battle of the Fire and the future of Sir Barristan, and Victorian and Tyrion, they both contributed to that, but neither as much as Sir Barristan. This, these preview chapters we're going to cover today, this is where we got the majority of information and the foundation for what this battle will be, at least at the beginning anyway. That's where we started most of our guessing from. So some things we mentioned, you will have heard a couple of weeks back, but they'll be expanded upon and you'll get to see the reasons why we thought of such things. And to be fair, probably some things today we won't get to that we did cover back then, so you might have to do a bit of jumping back and forth. As for what this chapter actually is, what this is about, 
Well, I don't think it needs all that much explanation, to be honest. This is, like with Tyrion 1, the build-up. And Tyrion 2 as well, to a certain degree. This is the build-up on Barry's side. We're seeing the other side of the fence now. We're really getting this little moment frozen in time just before it all kicks off. That little break just before the dawn. Barristan looking around, looking at what he has created, all the people he's responsible for, everything he has to do for Daenerys. And then we have the same as what Tyrion felt, that pre-battle high emotion and that clarity and that appreciation that suddenly comes when your death looks like it might be around the corner the difference this time as opposed to Tyrion's view is we're going to be looking at it from someone completely in charge who has the responsibility and the weight of all that hanging over them as well as someone who is just better suited to this this is just a bigger part of Barristan's life and that is Tyrion so we're good you're going to get a different type of angle we're really going to get a different kind of emotion to talk about and George is really really going to hit us with the this is what you've been waiting for idea so I think best thing is probably to dive right in and as you'd expect George wants to kick things off with a bit of atmosphere of course he does he wants to go across what it's like to be in this city of marine at this moment what the general mood is and he's going to convey that via mentioning what will very much be the focus of Barristan's chapters as well as they were for Tyrion a little bit last time for Barristan they were also the focus of his dance ending as well so why not open his wind's journey the same way we refer of course to the trebuchets and the opening line is this through the gloom of night the dead men flew raining down upon the city streets so it's nice it's simple it gets the job done and i can only theorize here but i think george is quite liking his chance to actually focus on trebuchets slash catapults slash siege weapons for once this is a man we know who loves every possible aspect of medieval warfare and battle he certainly knows his stuff about each subject and he likes to give each their juice so that he can stretch his writing wings as you know that's one of the reasons i'm convinced we're going to get some major naval battles somewhere in winds because george hasn't quite scratched that itch just yet not on a big enough stage anyway now to provide some evidence of this i went to the handy old searcher song of ice and fire tool i looked for the words siege towers catapults and trebuchets just to see how often they're actually mentioned and i'll tell you now siege towers throughout the whole series this is it comes up 28 times i actually thought it'd be more but catapults they come up 34 times and trebuchets they've come up 40 times that's just so far that's obviously going to go up way way up once we get to wins so you can see these have always been present throughout the series in many many different parts of the overall storyline they've appeared here and there and everywhere whether physically or just threatened or considered or whatever it might be yet george has never really been afforded the chance to look at them properly or up close not to make them important as i say we've had our quicker run-ins with various siege weapons we've had stannis's ram at king's landing joffrey had his catapults in the same battle but that's really it now they get to have the true spotlight as menacing domineering aspects of this battle that's more of a meta view let's go back to the mood of this opening line that was a bit of a tangent as it so often was with dance and certainly was with Tyrion 2 last week the opening line concerns a dead man or men in this case that makes sense death is a pretty strong way to get across a gloomy attitude and marine was a stadium of death long before we set this battle up now on the edge of battle of course death is what we're going to be talking about even if this particular sentence isn't focusing on soldiers and those about to die instead it's those who have already passed you might remember that at the end of dance when the trebuchets began to fire the corpses we talked about how this was a multi-pronged strategy that has been proven in real history one aim was to spread disease true but the more common in reality and the more certain if we're being honest was to lower morale 
I'm not breaking any barriers by informing you that morale was super important in medieval warfare. A lot of the time, it was the defining decider on the outcome of a battle. I really recommend some reading on the Last Kingdom series by Bernard Cornwell just to uh, expand on that idea a bit. He really goes through that quite a lot. And there are definitely elements of it at play all over Song of Ice and Fire. We've seen the philosophy behind such mentioned bunches of times in the talk about Broken Man and Tywin, he's talked about it as well. I'm pretty sure Ned did. The idea that if an army breaks, you're screwed, <laughs> basically, that like you have to keep together morale is the most important thing. If I had more time, I'd go through and look at all the many, many examples, because I bet there's dozens. And like I say, in other stories, such as The Last Kingdom, and many others I'm sure, or in our own real life history, a good example of this is The Shield Wall, which looks to maybe play a part in this battle later on, even if it is a bit different. But obviously, morale during sieges in general, again, massively important. If you're the attacker and can truly convince the defenders that they aren't going to win, it's a super effective tactic for making those defenders start fighting against themselves, slash do your job for you, slash just get the door open. Storm's End during Robert's Rebellion is probably the best example of this in the books so far. Starving a whole castle out is obviously a physical tactic at first. The defenders need food, or they'll either die or be too weak to actually stop in advance, but the morale aspect is important as well. Mace Tyrell and his friends dine in full view of the walls of Storm's End, because they are a bunch of dicks first off, but also to affect morale. To remind the Storm's End garrison how hungry they were, to entice them over with the mere promise of food. It was incredibly hard for the young Stannis Baratheon to keep those defenders in line for that amount of time. It really was something of an amazing achievement. And again, there's many, many examples of such throughout the whole series. River Run, for example, what the Freys were trying to do with Edmure. Didn't work, but you can see what they were trying to do. This attack on morale is slightly different. There's no temptation here. They're not trying to bring the Miranese people out over to their side. It's more of an attempt to make everyone feel as defeated and gloomy and sick as possible. That's all the better for kicking off infighting or dividing the defenders, as if Marine isn't divided enough already. It's all the easier to push the people over and then win. This is a whole city you're trying to affect, remember, rather than just a single castle. That also allows for many more factions and subsets of class to break and either run or betray the others or whatever it might be. And really, this is a pretty effective strategy, as is described to us in the rest of the opening paragraph as George goes full gore when detailing how some bodies would burst like balloons when they hit the ground, while others bounce around and leave bloody smears behind them on the walls and the buildings. Yes, it's damn effective. Not only will this send people scattering from wherever these bodies land because of the whole disease thing, and also it just not being very nice to witness in the first place, but it also just makes the whole thing seem inescapable. These blood smears will be there to remind you what is coming, what is outside those walls. They'll gnaw away at you, they'll make you want to run. It's almost like a bizarre form of propaganda that you just can't get away from. Remember, they are raining down out of the sky. That makes it impossible to escape. You can't escape the sky. Let's imagine you're sat having a breakfast with your family, trying to keep your children calm. There's a great big thud on the roof. Pieces of human are falling past the windows. What, what are you supposed to do there? How are you supposed to react or get on with your day or fulfil your fighting duty with that on your mind? It's not difficult to see the myriad of effects that this can have on the general populace or the fighting populace as well. Yunkai knows that Marine is already a city on the edge. If they can tip those scales just a little bit, the whole thing will collapse and they will win the day. And when they do, the Miranese people will be that easier to subdue because they just want the death to stop falling out of the sky. Luckily, our next paragraph tells us that the trebuchets can't penetrate all the way to the city centre and that most are only just coming over the wall, most corpses I mean. So that's 
something, I guess, if you really want to dig for the positive. Although you can still argue that the moral effect will keep on spreading even if the physical bodies don't, and the fear of a spreading disease will do the same. Plus, the Yonkish have spread the trebuchets out evenly in a rough crescent around Marine, so they are still affecting large areas of the city. And that arrangement will be important to remember for when we come to picture the actual battle later on in Barristan 2. Now, it does say that the trebuchets, they can't reach across the river, so hmm, maybe keep that in mind as well. That might become an important note later on, perhaps. It's now, only now, that we finally return to our protagonist of the day, Barristan Selmy, here he is, he's ready for the most important day in quite some time for him in fact. Remember, like we mentioned a little bit earlier, this is what Barristan is for in so many ways. This is his grand purpose. Now, again, we discussed a lot of this in dance, so I'll aim not to repeat, but this is just the kind of thing that feels proper to him natural and it comes on the heels of a four chapter arc that was entirely focused on Barristan being in a situation that was absolutely unnatural. The politics and the backhand deals and the technical breaking of O's, the eventual rule of marine, we covered it all aplenty I'm sure you remember. Well all of that has led to this with much of that eventuality only coming about because of Barristan's own decisions. So I'm really excited to see the difference in how George presents Barristan now that he is in his element, now that that wide, confusing world he found himself in has narrowed down to a field of battle. Try to kill those guys, try to keep those guys alive. This is what he knows, this is his world. So I really, really like that switch there. It's a really cool transition from dance to wins. And morally, Barristan's able to slide onto his own tracks much more easily now. He was able to make those tough decisions in dance, although with more than enough deliberation, because he could frame them as acting in the defence of Daenerys, which is his ultimate job and life purpose. But they didn't feel like defending Daenerys, not in the traditional sense, not what he's used to. But what today brings... No, 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 that is what he's used to. He has the chance to go and physically kill Daenerys' enemies and to keep her friends alive. Again, this is what he is for. This is what a Kingsguard should all be about. As you'll know from our coverage of Dance, I'm a huge Barry fan. I really like him as a character. I really like the character as someone to read and someone to see as important. George was able to unlock a whole bunch with that final decision to include Barristan as a POV. I think that will have only added to the idea of Barristan being one of the most important characters in Wins. That's really something I feel strongly about, that possibility, that advancement for Barristan in terms of importance in the structure. Later, we assume, there will be even bigger questions for Barristan in terms of the new dance between Aegon and Daenerys, where his loyalties will lie, and things of that nature. He'll serve a true narrative purpose as the bridge between two eras, as an old man entering a new time, and as a servant trying to do good but not knowing where to turn. Whether you buy into the idea of Barristan towing his cloak or not, I believe he really will be key throughout this book as a narrative figure. And that, like I say, is going to start right here at the beginning. I really think you can paint Barristan as the key character for the opening act of Wins, or at least this opening mini-act. Out of the preview chapters, definitely I think he blows the competition away, but that's just me. Because although, yes, Tyrion is here, and he's clearly the more important character overall, and Victorian's here as well, and technically this is all a big scrap over Daenerys herself, like I say, I consider Barristan to be the main guy of not only that opening act, but specifically this Battle of Fire. I don't think that's a huge leap to get to. Like we said, he is the guy who's kind of orchestrated it. He has far more control than Tyrion does. He has far more context and awareness than Victorian. He is the man in the middle. He's controlling the flow of battle and the fate of thousands. And beyond the idea that obviously everyone wants to stay alive, Barristan is also the most emotionally invested. 
Not only because he has that control, so a loss would mean personal failure on his part, but because of what his actual mission is here. A mission made up of his two biggest parts, protecting the innocent and protecting his queen. Now, we may scoff and say, well, he's not been great at protecting innocents before, has he? To which I would say, precisely. Barristan is aware of that on some level, at least. Perhaps not quite consciously, but somewhere in there. And he wants to make up for it. On a much more surface level, he has always been about the protection of innocence, the protection of children especially. We've spent ages before comparing him to Eddard in that respect, that was how we were introduced to the character. And we also covered it a plenty in dance as he looked over Masande or the cupbearers or his students in the Barristan Selmy Knighthood Academy TM. He must save them and he must save the vested interests of his queen. Everything that Daenerys has done in this part of the world Everything that she's changed, which is fucking bunches by the way, can be undone on this day by the Yunkish, right here and now. So Barristan is charged with keeping her flame alive, regardless of what has actually happened to her body, whether she's alive or not, this is her legacy and it's his responsibility to keep it going or what's it all been for. He must protect all the good she has done and he must do it with fire and blood, apparently. So you can see how important this opening is, as if you need reminding. This is the culmination of the entire Asosi plot that we've been reading for years and years now, especially everything since Storm. It's big stuff, even without the thousands and thousands of fates to be decided on this day. The control and responsibility Barristan is going to feel over all those many people, and that's even before the possibility of incredible heartache that might be waiting for him back in Marine after the battle is quote-unquote won. As we discussed at the end of Dan's, with the potential portrayal Scar has and all the terrible things that could come from that. He has plenty to be doing afterwards anyway in terms of dealing with Victarion or Tyrion or Dario or the rejoining swords and plenty of other things. We will discuss that later on. The point is that right now, this is the real deal. This is it. This is as important as it gets and Barry is the character that I associate with it most. So as he steps back onto the stage here, there's a real sense of the importance, the waiting for the moment and a man returning to his element. Finally, after so long as readers, we'll get to see Barristan the Bold in true action. We've had glimpses before and they've been impressive enough, we've heard tales as well, but now on a stage this critical, critical really is the word, we're about to see one of the legends of Westerosi history do his thing. I don't know how you can't get up for that, really. It is incredibly enticing. Out of all the people we might want to see a battle through, Barristan has got to be very, very high on the list. And I could go on and on about him returning to battle now as an older man and the difference between his younger years, the emotional effect that has on him, the bittersweetness of it all. But we've probably gone on a long enough tangent yet again and should return to the actual chapter. You know me, I could talk about Barristan for ages, but I think you know my feelings by now. So, back to the actual chapter then. Barristan is riding into the Market Square of Marine, which we can kind of frame as the staging area for the attack he's about to lead. And I should point out that this Market Square is on the western side of the city and leads to its huge gate, which is again important for visualising the battle later on. When he arrives, Barristan actually delves into recent memory instead of focusing on the present and very near future. He's thinking of when Daenerys and all her people originally took Marine, when they were the outsiders trying to get in instead of the reverse situation he now finds himself in. He thinks on how, when the gate he's now looking at was broken down, battle was joined between the forces of Daenerys Targaryen and the slave soldiers of Marine, and how it had been a bloody, brutal thing. Cast your mind back, we were not actually present for those actions during Storm, but we were for Daenerys' POV afterwards, when she walked through that aftermath and the remnants of the carnage. It was, it was pretty bad, it was not a nice scene. Her memory told us of how bad it really had gone, while she herself 
while she herself stepped over blood-soaked stones. So there is something of the cyclic nature of Marine, the one that we're always talking about, and not just Marine, but this part of the world. We've highlighted it before. It's the same old thing, again and again, it comes back to blood. Apparently, no matter what you do, it always seems to revolve around death. We've spoken about that never-ending circle of Marine from many different angles as well. It seems so strange to think about how quickly it's come around to essentially the same situation. Someone wants to come in, someone wants to keep someone out blood will be spilled. And for many of us, the initial thought of why Barry is thinking back on that would be to assume he's imagining what could happen again if he fails today. How he could look upon the same devastating picture, but with Danny's people on the wrong side, as well as the general populace of Marine, who always seem to be on the wrong side really. But in fact that is not the case, because Barrison tells us he doesn't need to wait or picture it, they're already there. Devastation has already come. Death has returned to the market square, riding on the back of the pale mare. So we see the effectiveness of those ghastly trebuchets and their work. Intimidation, that's one of the aims. But so is outright death and they are achieving that. The disease is killing people. It was already doing that, we know. But the rate has now just been increased so much that it's reaching a critical juncture. Barrison has to act. And unfortunately, we know a little bit too much about that in the real world, don't we? Let's highlight one particular line here. Let me read it for you. Torchlight shimmered in the puddles left by the recent rains, and painted lines of fire on the helms and greaves and breastplates of the men. I just love that as a way to get across the atmosphere of the moment. Waiting is so often the hardest part, and the assembled forces of Marine are currently standing here, in the square, looking out on what is most likely going to be their doom. Remember how bad their chances are in this thing. Braston will return to similar thoughts in a couple of pages time, but I think George paints such a picture with this line, it really does stand out to me. It personally makes me think of The Long Night from Season 8, Episode 3, Season 8, the famous battle at Winterfell. All of those people, remember the shots, those amazing shots of all the Dothraki lined up, all of the Unsullied lined up, all of the Northerners lined up, and them all just stood facing the dark. There was Jamie there, and Brienne there, and Jorah was there, most importantly, Ghosty was there. And they're all looking out on the darkest of darks. Their world was reduced to light of a few flickering flames, at least until Melisandre turned up. The painting and the visuals of that scene really just did make you think of them as this ragtag bunch, even though it was this massive assembled force, but it was this ragtag bunch against this insurmountable enemy that you couldn't even comprehend. Now, okay, this isn't on that same scale, but you get the general feeling, that waiting, that nervousness, that thing that is out there beyond that you're going to have to fight. So yeah, I really like that comparison, and maybe you can expect a few more of those type of things coming up soon. And yes, that is a not-so-shameful plug of our upcoming Scraps and Screens. You know I'm excited about it, so I'm just going to keep playing in these little uh, show comparisons, at least until we get there, and I can satisfy my needs on that different type of episode. I hope to see you all coming along for the rewatch. In the meantime, Braston gives us some extra details about him and his person. Last week, we had Tyrion preparing for battle with whatever bits of hodgepodge armour he could find. But for Barristan Selmy, it is the complete opposite, of course, even if the ritual of dress was the same. So Barry, he comes out in the armour of his soul, the white of the Kingsguard. White plate, a white shield, and of course, his white cloak. I don't think we need to dive too deep to see the symbolism here, I think we get the point. As we said, this is Barristan's moment to play the role that he's always tried to fill. We spoke a little bit about his emotional importance in his final chapters just before he went to fight Kraz back in the Kingbreaker, there was like a dedicated paragraph of him putting on this armour, and again, especially, the cloak. 
And of course, the fact that this specific armor, the one inlaid and chased with gold, it really does sound like something to behold, was given to him by Daenerys, that she was giving him his purpose and life back, is all the more important considering the moment. Barristan is out here representing his best self, but he's also trying to represent his queen. She might not be here physically, but he will try his hardest to carry her spirit with him and with all her warriors on this day. Case in point, no better way to prove it than Barristan riding Danny's beloved silver into battle. Yes, silver returns, that beautiful horse that we were introduced to all the way back in Game of Thrones. It's a gift that's been with Daenerys just as long as her dragon eggs have difficult to wrap your mind around that sometimes. Indeed, this was the present that Carl Drogo himself gave young Daenerys, and with the benefit of hindsight, we can see what a big deal that was for providing a bridge that carried Daenerys over into Dothraki culture and the person that she would become. Any gift from Drogo would be hugely emotionally important given what he still means to her even now, but her silver even more so. This was a gift given before the two of them even knew how to say hello in the same language. So this is important stuff. And the thing about Silver, as I'm just going to go ahead and name her out right here, is that she kind of disappeared for a little while there, or it seems like it anyway. Many likely thought she'd just perished or have been forgotten, but no, she is here again at this moment of extreme importance. So let's just quickly look back on how that significance was really focused on early, early in the story. As we've just said, she was an important gift. She was Danny's bridge into the new world and a new life, her literal transport, her mode of transportation. But when I looked back at a Game of Thrones, I can see that George, he really, really hammered home the silver vibe of Daenerys early on, even before the horsey gift, and far more than in subsequent books, I feel. Again, went to do some research. The word silver comes up 59 times in Danny's Game of Thrones chapters, and less than half of those are in reference to the horse. So most of them about something else. Seven of them come in Danny's first chapter alone. Her hair is constantly, and I mean constantly, referred to as silver or silver gold. She has a silver looking glass. She's given a silver handed whip. Yes, how symbolic. I wonder if Jogo still owns that. She's given silver rings. The moonlight is silver. Silver hair, silver hair, silver hair. Drogo also has silver bells in his hair. Viserys' hair is described as silver as well. Silver is one of the gifts that Kalasar gives to the Doshkaleen. And when Daenerys meets Miri Mazdur, the woman refers to Daenerys as the Silver Lady. So I'm wondering if George was really trying to make a point with this characterization early on. Was the Silver Lady supposed to be a true persona or a hint to something later on that George eventually strayed from? Or will it come back later? Is Danny supposed to be something close to a living ghost or a representation of such? Silver is not so very far from white after all, and we know what colour that normally makes us think of. We know what dwells beyond the wall. And I ask because the silver references kind of fall off a cliff after a Game of Thrones. In Clash of Kings, there are only 20 mentions of the word. And remember, the horse was still around back then, so she took up a big chunk. The word is there in the text, but it's barely used at all in conjunction to Daenerys herself or any of her personal items. For example, her hair is referred to as silver just once in that entire book, and it's at the very end as well. Now, in fairness, that's because a lot of it was burnt off at the end of Game of Thrones, but you get my point. It's an incredible switch, although we should know also that her vision of Ares back in the uh, House of the Undying is of a silver-haired man, and Rhaegar's harp at the same time had its silver strings, so maybe this word is just so much more tied in with the Targaryens than before. Just to continue the research, in Storm it is much the same thing. Just two silver hair comments even in a much, much longer arc. 
Although by this point, I must admit that in this research, we actually did hear far more of her silver horse than I remembered. Poor Horsey only has the one appearance in dance though, hence why it was easy to forget about her. And the word itself becomes almost entirely associated with actual currency or the fringes upon tokars. So I'm left to wonder about the silver imagery of Daenerys Targaryen that perhaps George did abandon as he began to paint her more and more in red and black. I'm no good at deciphering clues or coming to any sort of conclusion or answer here, but every now and then I can at least recognise some clues. I can say, hey, that might mean something, and perhaps this is one of those times. So I suggest we just keep an eye out and have that in the back of our mind. Maybe we all do some thinking about why Daenerys was linked to this colour so much early on. We'll all meet back here on the aisle, see if we can come up with something. Back to the chapter. Yeah, another tangent, I know. The silver hasn't just been brought out for more fortitude. It's because she's been around the dragons more than any other horse, and Barristan is looking for any advantage he can get his hands on, no matter how small. This will be a game of inches. It bears remembering, though, that the silver hasn't been near the dragons in ages, and definitely hasn't been around them since they've grown this large or this ferocious. Whereas Barristan says, it's still more than any other horse, so why wouldn't you try to gain a step on the enemy when you can? What we have to wonder is if this is a sign of Barry being super smart and the ancient link between this horse and the dragons paying off. We could also remember the line from a Game of Thrones about the silver. Daenerys says, she jumped the fire as if she had wings. So pretty clear connection there. We made a big deal of that at the time for obvious reasons. Maybe it will come back to prove true. Or is it a hint of the opposite? That the dragons are truly wild now and can't be swayed by such old relationships. Will Barristan have overguessed himself and be proven wrong, as he may be in so many other ways by the end of this battle? We've really got to hope nothing bad happens to the silver herself because we obviously don't want to see that. No, no thank you. But let's face it, her odds aren't great before you add the chaos of dragon fire everywhere. And we recently did see Drogon bring down a horse in Danny's final dance chapter. Maybe one of her other two dragons will do the same, but to a horse that we know. It would sever another tie that Danny has to Essos and that whole world. It would push her closer to Targaryen mode than Dothraki or anything else. Even if that flies in the face of the return of her Dothraki roots, as she, probably, we're assuming, heads to face Dothraki to gain them as a people. So to sum up, the silver, an important part, a nice touch from George. Coming behind Barristan as he rides into the square are his three lads, the ones he raised at the end of Dance, and the ones we said would have a part to play come wins. Well... Here we are, with their education coming to a possibly rapid conclusion. And just to jog your memory again, we have Tumko Lo, the former slave from the Basilisk Isles, the Red Lamb, he was the Lazarine, and there's Larak the Lash, the Giscari with his unique star we fight with the whip, remember. The first two were made knights just prior to the end of Dance, so that Barristan could ensure the survival of knights in the area should he fall. That was obviously a huge moment for them, and for Barristan as well, as discussed at the time, but unfortunately not one that offers any real protection for what's coming. Yeah, a little bit of flaw in logic there. Barristan wants to continue the line of knights, but he takes all the knights in with him. Mm, maybe not. Anyway, as we've said since we were first introduced to the three of them, we have to consider the possibility of their deaths coming into this battle. They are young. They are untested in actual warfare. They've been trained by one of the best, but only sparingly, and how much can that push back against the chaos of a real battle? What we do know is the loss of any of them would take a very, very heavy toll on Barristan. So that's something else we don't want to see. Now, just as likely is that we see one, or all three, shoot their shots for glory. Maybe one even earns some if they're lucky. For they are the green boys, they're the new knights of summer, and each of them would love to impress their mentor, not to mention the fact they really, really want to strike back at their former slavers, their tormentors. We'll talk a little bit about that later on. 
For now, even with their advanced status, they are acting in more of a squire role. Specifically, they are taking the banners into battle, a key position of high importance. It goes beyond the normal, this is who we are, we're coming to knock your lights out type of message. That exists in every battle. But in this one, with so many different factions and commands, with so much about to happen all at once, the grand master of all of it, being able to look to the banners to see what's happening and what you should be doing is more important than ever. This is more than just mere decoration. Now Tumko, he will carry the standard of House Targaryen, which, when you think about it, is actually a pretty big deal. This is the first time that ancient symbol that has been seen a billion times over the course of history, this is the first time it's been seen in an official battle since the Trident. Or technically, I guess, since uh, they probably had a few flying at Dragonstone when Stannis came a knocking, but again, you get my point. Clearly, that makes it a most prestigious of honours. And obviously, it's another part of Barry's plan to try and keep his army's spirits raised. Larak will carry the standard of the Kingsguard, the seven silver swords surrounding a golden crown. Amazingly, and I do mean amazingly, I'm pretty sure this is the first time this banner has ever actually been described to us. Isn't that incredible, seeing how big of a part the story of the Kingsguard are from the very beginning of the series? We could have easily had this described to us in Bran's first chapters, and it wouldn't have been out of place, would it? But somehow, even with all our time in King's Landing, in the throne room, in the minds of Jaime and Aris and Barristan, we've even been into White Sword Tower itself, it's never come up. In Feast for Crows, Jaime did carry a white Kingsguard banner with him into the Riverlands, but it was never actually described. So that, that's just kind of amazing, a bit of an oversight from George there perhaps, or maybe he was just holding back. Now I can't remember off the top of my head whether it's seen in Fire and Blood, maybe it is, someone uh, correct me on that. And the Red Lamb, he will blow Barrison's command horns, which is a truly important position as just discussed. Yes, there's so many horns in this battle, isn't there? And maybe you would note that this one is silver banded, and that there's silver swords everywhere like we just said, and we have the silver horse, so that theme, that silver theme is rearing its head again. If it were up to Barristan, all three of his lads would be far away from here, or at least not about to ride out. But they are knights now, and when it comes down to it, he needs everyone he can get. As for the rest of his Padawans, they've been left back at the Great Pyramid, the place that Barristan figures to be the only safety left in this city. Now, I don't want to jump forward here too much, or backward depending on how you see it. We've discussed it before, we'll discuss it later. But there is this possibility, this cloud hanging over us, of Skahaz betraying Barristan while the city is under his control. That's a huge subject that we really did dive into before and will do so again later if we have the time. It will be a crime and a tragedy to match any other in the series and it hits on some of the biggest themes of the book. The emotional pain it would cost Barristan is unimaginable. And that was all when we were just thinking about Skahaz and his beasts coming for the hostages, the children, the cupbearers that Skahaz hates so much. But now we have this extra layer. What if Skahaz comes and the young lads, having learnt the chivalric code from Barristan, stand up to them? They try to protect the weak. What if Barry returns to the Great Pyramid to have his own Luke Skywalker moment of seeing his academy in tatters and his students dying long before he does? That would be an unimaginable scene for Barristan to find. The cupbearers, yes, that would be bad enough. But to see the corpses of his kids, the ones he effectively thought of as his own sons, having died trying to protect them, well... It certainly would be fitting if they took his last message of chivalry to heart and tried to protect the younglings only to be cut down. A tragedy on top of a tragedy, another source of guilt and anger and pain that may well be what sends Barristan into questionable decision-making mode. Like I say, maybe we'll have time to talk about that later on, but the detail of his apprentices and where they are should not be. 
big Nord that's really going to stick in the back of our minds all the way throughout this battle. That tension is going nowhere. Now it's also mentioned here, as well as actually back on the first line, it's not yet day. So we're playing with the timing a little bit from Tyrion 2. Most likely this chapter comes prior to his second it could come out like in terms of in-world timing it definitely comes before but where george will present it it's all a bit murky i'm not going to go too far into what fits where but anyway just so you know we're approaching dawn here so now that he's fully arrived into the square barristan takes a second to look around at the different sections that make up his force his army first he points out the unsullied for us the key to the battle in many ways We've seen their effectiveness before, but probably not to this coming scale. So that's another excitement for us. That's another build-up. And as if we need any reminder just how unique and special these guys are, George reminds us by showing us a frankly amazing response to another falling body coming out of the sky and landing next to them, or landing basically on them. All they do is step aside, ignore it, and carry on. They really are something else. They really are unbreakable and therefore completely unworkable by the enemy they don't know how to handle them because people should break that's what happens you almost wish that the yunkish could watch them so they'd react to the falling bodies like this because it might really get them reconsidering the idea to charge and come at this city after that barrister looks to the storm crows now under the command of jokin who in my mind just looks like nikola Jokic from the denver nuggets i can't get that out now and also the widower i can't really think of an nba comparison for the widower unfortunately I'm willing to bet someone's had that nickname in uh, NBA history, or I should look to basketball reference, but for now, we'll have to just go with Nikola Jokic. But anyway, these two are now in command in Dario's absence, as you might remember. So we're already getting an idea in the variety of different companies. Of course, the difference is that this side don't have nearly as many as Yunkai, that they're far better organised, united, and they have infinitely better leadership. So that's important. Next up are 20 Dothraki riders, and I must admit, I didn't have any idea there was that many left. I probably wouldn't have even guessed there were before the majority left to go searching for Daenerys, so shame on me. Now though, left behind here, it's only the elderly or the young. But still, we know how effective Dothraki can be in battle, and cavalry, the horse, will be a big part of this coming battle, this coming conflict, so maybe this group will have some major moments and really be useful. Then again, the ages at both ends of the spectrum, the people at the end of their life, the people trying to start out their career, that might mean further hunting for glory from this Dothraki group. And they also have to avoid the falling corpses every time another one drops. Just imagine how distracting that is. You've got to look up at the dark at all times because a human corpse might be flying towards you. And not only is it distracting and sickening, it's also physically super dangerous as well. It's not just disgusting, it can easily kill you if you're hit by one of these. Easily. So we've got Unsullied, we've got Stormcrows, we've got Dothraki. Next, Barrison looks to several hundred pit fighters that have gathered up. Hundreds. I thought I was off on the Dothraki numbers. I had no idea there were hundreds of pit fighters. This is another area that we talked about plenty in Dance. It's another part of the possible portrayals that Barristan could face. Either of them not letting him back into the city when the battle's over, because they're the rear guard essentially, or they could try to kill him out in the field in order to help out the Harpy, slash Galaza, slash Hisdar, or maybe they just want to avenge the latter. It would be pretty fitting if both Hisdar and Skahaz, those old enemies, both had their kind of wins while only Barry loses. Yeah, that seems like a particular George brand of cruelty, doesn't it? And like I say, I thought that they were going to be a big enough issue when there was just a few of them, but now there's apparently hundreds? Well, they could easily swing the battle with the betrayal when they're trying to get to Barristan. And that makes you wonder whether those three lads, Tumko and Narak and the Red Lamb, they could go down protecting their teacher, just like their fellows could go down protecting their children back at the Great Pyramid. 
So you can see many of the parts of these theories that we spoke about before during Dance have their roots here, such as Barristan being pleasantly surprised that the pit fighters are actually coming out to fight for their city. Maybe that is true for some of them, but oh, come on. In general, everything they have comes from Hisdar and the Harpy, so of course they want to get them back in power, and the best way to do that, get rid of Barristan. So that's yet another source of tension, another thing to stick in our mind throughout that I just can't not focus on. Barristan looks among them, he mentions many that we've never even heard of before, we've never seen, and he begins to put his trust in them, in a sense. Like we mentioned back in Dance, he seems to think that they are actually fighting for their freedom, he thinks they're actually bought into what he's selling, basically. And we have to wonder if this is another case of poor trusting Barry, if we've got those Ned vibes of putting your trust in the wrong type of people at the exact wrong time. He even notes that yes, they are loyal to his dar, but well, he's glad to have them. And okay, we get that in a numerical sense. He needs the bodies, he needs them, but really hoping he doesn't lean too far into thinking they're on his side and they're not going to act in their own self-interest or that of his dar or the harpy if it comes down to it. He should be more aware of that than he seems to be. I just really worry that that will come back to bite him at some point. He even thinks that his defeat of Kraz might have taught them something because some of them are wearing armor. Uh, I think if they're remembering anything, it's that you killed one of their own Barristans. So again, he might just be picking the wrong side of the fruit type of thing. He might just be ignoring things that he really should not be ignoring. And as I say, that's got a stick in our mind, even if it's not sticking in Barristans. That sense of betrayal, that worry, the idea that even if this goes well, it won't go well. well that's just really, really stinking the place out at the moment. But next we learn that the brazen beasts have been left to man the walls under the command of Skahaz. So yes, it might well say something that these two paragraphs, first the pit fighters and then the brazen beasts, are next to each other. Maybe George is getting all his betrayal talk out at once. But again, Barristan doesn't really think anything of it, which really is kind of a big clue to us that it probably does mean something. Instead, he's thinking about Daenerys. He's doubting whether she'll ever come back. Of course, he keeps that private though, and he pretty much just shoves it away because he just can't focus on that right now. He's got a job to do. In the Tyrion chapters, we did a lot of comparing it back to the Blackwater and the setup of that battle. And it turns out we can do the same thing here as Barristan starts talking about the various gates of Marine, obviously reminding us of all the different gates of King's Landing and how they became key objectives in the minds of Tyrion and Stannis back in the day. In this case, Barristan is continuing his rundown of who is where. He's doing a kind of mental checklist before he heads out the door. Some of us just have to pat our pockets to check we've got keys. Some of us have to check that all the many parts of a grand army are in the right place. Tall Torak, another commander we met in Barry's last dance chapter, has his stalwart shields on the opposite side of the city, on the eastern gate. There will be less of the enemy there, it will be easier, but everywhere obviously has to be defended. You can't just leave a gate wide open because you don't think an enemy will come. At the same time, Marcelin and the Mother's Men are down on the south gate. And that's a good example actually of showing that all of them are going to become involved because we know from Tyrion 2 that the Mother's Men made some of the first progressions of the battle when they overwhelmed the Long Lances. So it's just a good reminder that this attack of Barristan's is going to come from all angles. And finally, there is the North Gate, manned by Simon Strikeback and his three brothers. Barristan reckons they are going to have the easiest time of it because only the river and a few ships stand in front of them, with the Kaskari camped on the other side of the river and just a few ships to deal with. Of course, anytime anyone says anything is going to be easy in these books, we know it's bound to end up as the opposite. But we also know, thanks to other chapters, that the river is going to be way more active than Barristan predicts. There's no easy pass in this battle, methinks. So after thinking of the apparently easy, Barristan returns to the supposedly hard, the enemy in front of him, and the west gate, 
the main camp. It lies between the walls of Marine and the waters of the bay, which is again pretty important in terms of that sandwich feeling we got in Tyrion's chapter, though obviously neither Yunkai nor Marine are expecting that at this point. Instead, Barristan is focusing on those main objectives again, the trebuchets. Two of them will be in front of him, both defended by hordes of the Yunkish enemy, and the Giscari as well, and the company of the cat and those deadly Talosi slingers we've already seen, and 300 Alarian crossbowmen as well. A lot, is what Barristan is saying. There are a lot of enemies. Too many, Barristan privately admits to himself. Yes, this hasn't just been about checking for his keys, it's also been about one final look at the numbers, one final totting up at their chances, and not getting a great answer really. Indeed, he returns to the strategic decision he was forced to make in dance, and why he was forced to make it. This is not what he wants. This is not a winning strategy. He'd rather use the huge defensive multipliers that the city of Marine offers. He even thinks that that strategy might have kept them safe for years. Possible, but only if you ignore all the social factors and the inner politics still raging inside. I don't think that would have lasted for years. But he knows that such thoughts are folly now anyway. It doesn't matter. Whatever his instincts, whatever his training from the White Bull, his former law commander, the Pale Mayor has come to ruin all and force Barristan's hand. Then again, so much of his arc already has been about going against what feels natural, so this is just another step on that ladder, except it's the most dangerous yet. As Barristan says, they are riding into the teeth. They are outnumbered, and they have hope alone. In the same vein, Barristan reflects on how much he's had to rely on swords here, something he would have never hoped to do. So at least he's aware that that part of the plan is pretty rocky, but he still might be overestimating in certain areas, like the pit fighters. At the end of the day, it's shaping up to be a real chance, no choice type of situation. With the counting and reflecting done, Barristan gets back outside of his own head to address the men gathered around him. And George begins by describing it as a hush that falls when Barristan moves forward. Again, this is a pretty new experience for us. We have very, very rarely been inside the mind of someone in charge or in a command position for battle. And certainly we've not on this scale. Tyrion never had this kind of pull. Barristan has all eyes on him. There's silence in his wake. This is the calm before the storm. As always, George describes it best. All of it seemed muffled and far away. It was not a silence, just a quiet, the indrawn breath that comes before the shout. Torches smoked and crackled, filling the darkness with shifting orange light. I love that indrawn breath line, what a sense of the moment those couple of words achieve. It sucks us right back from the logistical and returns us to the tension to the emotional instead. And again, there's also these constant references to the torchlight, the orange and the red. We've had them throughout the chapter so far. Some of that is just painting of the scene, sure, but maybe it's also a hint that later on, everywhere will be doused in this colour, instead of the black of night, due to the painting of a dragon's breath. Just keep an eye on that orange, I think George is saying. That sense of the moment, it comes on even further now, as Barristan rides before thousands of eyes, before all the commanders he had just listed a second ago. He is very much the centre of their world right now. Before he addresses everyone at large, he talks to his captains, he gathers them all together, and we get some more explanation on the actual tactics of what's about to come, some of which we've already seen the beginnings of in Tyrion's chapter and did discuss previously in our Look Ahead and Dance. The main point is this, once those gates open, Barristan wants them to pour out of them, to rush at their opponents with all speed with their cavalry, especially at the slave soldiers because they are the most likely to break. Again, I'm just going to give you a little tip, remember all this because you'll be seeing it soon enough. The larger aim, of course, is the trebuchets. The widower reminds us they are to take it, topple it, burn it, just bring that sucker down. That is why they are riding out, that is what they must stop. That's the big target, although there are others as well. Nikola Jokic, slash Jokin, mentions bringing down any nobles they can while they're out there. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? They're the ones in charge, 
their deaths will bring the most chaos and confusion and help any slave soldiers already thinking about breaking do so. They could burn the tents as well just to add to that confusion. It just gives them something else to deal with. Do what you can, basically. From there comes the dodgy bit, the pit fighters to come forward and fill the gap carved by the cavalry. And they are there apparently to do as much slaughter as possible, which seems to fit in pretty well with what pit fighters like to do as a hobby. But then again, this is true battle, not the made up ancient WWE kind that marine champions normally. The only one we've seen fight in the real world so far is Kraz, and he didn't do so well. So let's see what these lot actually look like out in the field. That's if they follow the orders at all, of course. That worrying just must persist that they will not, or they will and do the wrong thing, or whatever it might be. I just can't bring myself to take my eyes off them. Though for now, they do seem to be playing their part. Marriston wants them to dip in, try and intimidate the hopefully already broken lines, and also kill officers and nobles to bring down that tentative structure of the Yonkish. You can see Barristan's smarts on display. He knows exactly what we know, that the Yonkish leadership structure is fucked. It could easily collapse all on its own, but give it a little push, and maybe the whole thing will just utterly shatter. That alone could be the best chance for them to win the day. And Gokul the giant, at least, seems to be all up for it, even if Barristan doubts their ability to actually hit and run, to strike and retreat, strike and retreat. But that's not the worst eventuality, if they forget the retreat part, as long as he gets the striking. But all of that is merely the beginning. It's a shot they may as well take while they can, just in case they can bring some maximum damage early on. Really, the initial rush is a time buyer to allow them to deploy what we know is their best weapon and best chance, the Unsullied. The time to deploy is critical, and it's incredibly interesting. It's another nod to reality that we don't normally get in most fantasy books. In many battles we've seen on printed page, you just send your forces against one another. But for the Unsullied to be effective, they need that time to set up and get information. As Barrison tells us, this setting up time is the crux of it all. If it works, and the Unsullied get to that point, then the needle hugely swings in Marine's favour, because the Unsullied are simply unmatched. And there has to be that level of excitement that we mentioned earlier, about the possibility of actually seeing them at work. We have seen them before, true, but not in their preferred field of a field battle, just like this one. Perhaps we will finally get to see them at their devastating best. Though there's also the possibility that we'll only get a glimpse of that before George shatters all illusions by showing us exactly what will break them if maybe the dragons come calling. That would be a pretty good way to show their, their awesome power if even the Unsullied break. Of course, the flip side is, if they don't get set up, then they are vulnerable, and Barristan risks losing his most valuable asset. Barry, again being smart as he is, predicts that the Yunkish would send their own horse just as the Unsullied are trying to set up, which is what we know they exactly plan to do thanks to Tyrion's chapter. So it's fascinating to see these different tacticians and leaders play off against each other here. Luckily, we know that the Yunkish plan is already scuppered thanks to Tyrion and the Windblown. But that only means they won't be the ones to do it. The Yunkish may still find a replacement, and this remains one of the most important aspects of the battle. If they do get the Unsullied set against the Gascari, well, at least that will be a victory. Barastin thinks so, Grey Worm thinks so, and we think so as well, probably. That's if everything goes well, but Barastin is too smart, too old, and too good of a leader to be completely blinded by ego. He must add in contingencies, such as to obey the sound of retreat should they hear his horn. Marine remains a defensive advantage that they can take advantage of if needs be. If the horn sounds, they need to get to it quickly and they need to follow the banners to do so, so we see the importance of the Padawans again. The Widower takes the talk of contingency one step further. What are they supposed to do if Barristan and his boys should fall? 
Well, there's many a commander we've met in this series who would strike you down just for thinking such a question, but Barristan is not so foolish as that. He knows this is not a comment on his strength or his age. Again, he's not blinded by ego. He knows it's a matter of fact and logistics. So he sets a chain of command. After him comes the Widower, then Nikola Jokic, then Grey Worm. And he doesn't bother going any further than that because if all of them are dead, probably everyone else is as well. Now, I'm not entirely sure picking two of the Cell Swords as a second and third choice is a great policy. They all have much more personal motivations than those needed to win the day, but they are best out of this main bunch around Barristan at the moment, I suppose. Unfortunately, this does bring up the idea of this possibility for the reader, one we've already had to consider, will Barristan die? We've talked about betrayal coming from behind him already, but straightforward death is also looming in front. He tells us that he intends to be the first through the line because he's awesome. So there's going to be plenty of opportunity for death, and though we super, super hope it doesn't come, it may. So George is definitely putting us on edge and raising the tension there, but this is also an effort to show again how much better Barristan is than the opponent. In the Tyrion chapter, we've already seen Puddingface die while in the role of Supreme Commander, and the result was chaos, a clamouring by all to fill his spot and take command for themselves while confusion reigned. This effort by Barristan, well it's only an effort, but it's more than they did, it's an effort to make sure there is structure, even after him, and it isn't watertight, no, but it is better than what they've got. Even if we do suspect that if Barristan falls, the day is probably lost straight away. The Widower has another question. What do they do if they should run into Daria Naharis? Barristan gives the instant answer. Give him a bloody sword and tell him to use it. We know Barry's opinions on Dario, but now is really not the time to focus on them. They simply don't matter right now, but the battle does. Danny isn't even here for Dario to corrupt right now, but there's plenty of Yunkish that need killing, so get him out there. What I do question is why is the Widower bothering to ask? It should be a fairly obvious answer, no? So I'm wondering if maybe the Widower and Nikola Jokic slash Jokin have a bit of a different idea should they come across Dario. Maybe they quite like being in charge. And let's not forget how Dario got the top job in the first place. There are a lot of questions surrounding what happens with these hostages and how certain people react to one another, and this might have to be another thing for us to consider. Barristan even has the rather dark thought that maybe Dario will go down heroically in battle, saving Barry a lot of trouble in the future. Unfortunately, he doesn't click that a lot of people were probably thinking the same thing about him. Let's have a quote, shall we? If there are no further questions, go back to your men and say a prayer to whatever god you believe in. Dawn will be with us soon. A red dawn, said Jokin of the Stormcrows. A dragon dawn, thought Sir Barristan. Ah, the red dawn line. That catches me. Because, to be honest, like so many things in the Song of Ice and Fire, this makes me think of Lord of the Rings. Now, I've never read them. Put your pitchforks down. I know your opinions. No, I've never read them. I've tried. Believe me, I've tried. But that's not for me. But the films, specifically, Return of the King. Feared in speech right there at the end, or near the end anyway. That is my favourite part. It tears me up, honestly. We watched them last summer. Oh, I must have watched that scene on YouTube like 50 times afterwards. It's amazing. Now, I don't know if similar is said in the books, but during that speech, Fearden, he talks about a red day and the sun rising. And this one, well, for me, it really does get us going. It really does get us built up. That red dawn that is coming. Of course, George gives it his own spin. He gives the Targaryen tag a dragon dawn. Oh, yes, it definitely works on me. George knows what he's doing. In the meantime, Barry takes a moment to think of his own earlier prayers while he went through the ritual of armouring up. That's something he's done a thousand times or more, but it's always special. He's still hopeful. He's still pleading to his gods in a way. But the biggest heart stab is when he refers to his half-trained lads as the closest things to sons he would ever know. Oh dear, we've, we've really got to hope they get through it because the alternative is not cool. 
Now, just for a change of pace, how about some more sky corpses? Now these ones, they shower the pit fighters with little pieces of former human. A leg lands right in front of Barristan. The gore aspect really can't be overstated here, it is absolutely disgusting. And that's even before you get to the rather troubling part of being covered in the blood and flesh of someone who's recently died from a terrible disease. This is bad and it's a reminder of why Barristan must act. He personally gets a larger reminder when he realises that Tumco Lowe is more frightened of the disease than he is the enemy, which might not be the most foolish of ideas, but all of them around him are worried, much as they might try to hide it. The emotions we got from Tyrion and the Second Sons are just as prevalent here, more so in fact. Barristan is as experienced as they come, but he does not forget, so he takes the opportunity to give them a caring, rousing speech while he can. We've just had the Red Dawn, well, George wants to double down on the real heart stirrers right now. Because Barristan hits the nail on the head throughout this speech, but there's some specific lines to look at, I think. Let's have them here. What if you shame yourself out there, you wonder? What if you forget all your training? You yearn to be a hero, but deep down inside you fear you might be craven. And then we follow with this. Every boy feels the same way on the eve of battle. Aye, and grown men as well. Those storm crows over there are feeling the same thing. So are the Dothraki. There is no shame in fear unless you let it master you. We all taste terror in our time. This guy, he just understands completely. He knows how to get through to them. And George delivers it with some drop-dead gorgeous writing. And on top of that, Barry is absolutely right. We know about the Stormcrows. We know that they're feeling this way. And the ending of that little speech, again, reeks us some Gandalf talk as well, if you ask me. The Red Lamb goes typical young guy in his response. We've seen Jamie, we've seen Loras, it's a tale as old as time. The brashness, the arrogance, the denial of fear. Perhaps that's what he needs to get through this, perhaps it's truly what he feels. Either way, Barristan recognises it as completely normal and he doesn't chide him or embarrass him. He smiles and accepts and gives a gentle nudge into not doing anything completely moronic in the chase of glory. His speech continues with the focus of making these boys feel as at ease as possible. He makes them feel normal. He makes them feel exactly the same as him, the living legend. Whether it be here, in the waiting, whether it be later, in the chaos. You are the same as everyone else who has ever done this anywhere in the world. Don't worry about how you look. Don't bother wasting time with shame or worry. Whatever happens, keep going. Keep moving. Keep fighting. Every worry you have is shared by all. You are all in this together and you are all in it with me. Even Barristan the Bold had a battlefield accident back in the day. It goes further with this grand act of reassurance. Firstly, there are survivors of every battle, and you have a chance to be one of them, so never lose hope. And most importantly, do not view the enemy as some all-powerful wall of grand warriors so much better than you, because the enemy is not that. He's exactly the same. He's just as worried and scared, and half of them are in chains to boot, so they're even worse off than you are. Braston tells them to do what is needed. If you have to hate a man in order to kill him, then hate him. If you can love and respect him, all the better but still kill him. Keep going. The initial rush is critical. If they falter, their chances will plummet at the first hurdle. They must charge, they must strike hard. And from there, Barristan is about to diverge into a talk on tactics again, until he is interrupted by Larrick Lalash, and his speech ends. But before we move on, to be honest, I think this speech is actually too good to pass by without quoting in its entirety. I personally think it's right up there with the speeches of the series. It is rousing, sure, but it's more an act of kindness. It's a last preparation before war, a bone thrown to terrified green boys about to face the armour question. There's not a lot that can make it easier when you come down to it, but what Barristan can offer, he does. He looks after them, he's the mentor, he's the leader, he's the warrior. I adore it, so here it is. Strap in. Whatever might befall us on the battlefield, remember, it has happened before. 
and to better men than you. I am an old man, an old knight, and I have seen more battles than most of you have years. Nothing is more terrible upon this earth, nothing more glorious, nothing more absurd. You may wretch, you will not be the first. You may drop your sword, your shield, your lance. Others have done the same. Pick it up and go on fighting. You may foul your breaches. I did in my first battle. No one will care. All battlefields smell of shit. You may cry out for your mother. Pray to gods who thought you had forgotten. Howl obscenities that you never dreamed could pass your lips. All this has happened too. Some men die in every battle. More survive. East or west in every inn and wine sink, you will find greybeards endlessly refighting the wars of their youth. They survived their battles, so may you. This you can be certain of. The foe you see before you is just another man, and like as not, he is as frightened as you. Hate him if you must. Love him if you can, but lift your sword and bring it down, then ride on. Above all else, keep moving. Yeah, I'm a fan, personally. The interruption in question, the one that takes that grand, indrawn breath of this market square and finally exhales it, is the fire signal atop the Great Pyramid, 800 feet high, where once the symbol of the harpy stood, representing slavery and evil, we now have the sign of House Targaryen, fire. We said watch for the oranges and reds that have been a focus of this chapter, well this is why. Barristan wants his army to remember who they are fighting for. Short of planting a dragon up there on top of a pyramid, this is the best way to do it. And just to join in the fun, the sun begins to break through at the exact same time. Yes, it is Gandalf all over again, isn't it? Battle at dawn. So all breaths are out. We've moved to the next stage as Barristan hears a thousand voices sounding, a thousand heads turning, a grand army drawing their sword as one, as the sound of the portcullis is rising. As Barristan himself says, it is time. He does his last preparation. He grabs a winged helm, a shield, and then his most natural state returns. We have Barristan at his best. What an outstanding hype chapter for this coming battle it is. Let's finish it with the quote. The air tasted strangely sweet. There was nothing like the prospect of death to make a man feel alive. May the warrior protect us all, he told his lads. Sound the attack, and away we go. What a, a build-up, what a rush we've got there. That's a really good accumulation of just kind of like everything that needs to be considered in this chapter before you go off to war. We've got the tactical side, we've got Barristan kind of totting up what he's got, what have the other side got, how it's best to deploy them, where to deploy them. We've got all of those strategical and tactical decisions. That's very, very cool. We've got the nod to memory and that cyclical nature of it all, what's happened before and kind of the irony of being on the other end of it now. We've got that constant cloud overhanging of these poor dead people coming out of the sky, that gloom, that atmosphere, George keeps it all the way up. But I think the most important thing, probably the thing we enjoy uh, the most out of it is again that ending speech and just what it feels like before you go into battle. That's very much what Tyrion's chapters were about. We spoke about that loads and loads and that's obviously quite a specific angle for Tyrion as a person. Now we're getting a completely different angle from Barristan being a warrior, being a commander, being in charge here today. Very, very different, but no less interesting. And he still manages to get across like two ends of the spectrum. Barristan is as far on one end of the spectrum as you can get in terms of experienced warriors, but he's relating his experience back down to the other side, to these people, these young men who have had no idea what they're getting themselves into. They've never experienced anything like this. It's as big a day as you can possibly get in your life because it might be the last and he's throwing himself right into that experience i mean we've talked about him being a teacher and being the leader and all these other things i don't think we have a better example than right here do we i know we've been told that he's been training them he's got his little academy but we don't actually see 
such amazing evidence of that until right here that's where the best evidence comes from and i like to think that some of this we've talked about barristan having to repay things or do things a bit better i think that's a part of this because he was made lord commander fine but he didn't really do the job did he now th- this could be a deep conversation that we probably need to save for another time but after what happened in robert's rebellion and what happened to his former king's guard when he wasn't lord commander when the white bull was when all of those really good guys and that's how he sees and when they all got taken away and he was then put at the head of this new squad of Jamie and Merrin Tran and Boris and everyone else well he wasn't a very big fan of them and he, he kind of shut himself off at least to Jamie we know that for sure we're going to assume he wasn't really bothered with the others as well and he kind of let responsibility slide he did the bare minimum in a lot of ways I think that is a um, valid complaint we can put against Barristan we don't know all the details because there's a a really big gap in the histories from Robert's Rebellion to the current series to be honest to the start of this series I've spoken about that before there's kind of a weird empty bubble where just seemingly not a lot happens but either way he didn't take that opportunity to take certain people under his wing and and do what he was supposed to so again that's coming out better now now that's not to say that these lads are replacing Jamie or that he should have done that or needed to do that. I mean, it's pretty complicated. We know there's so much wrapped up in everything that went around Robert's Rebellion. But the point is, he is doing it now and he's doing it brilliantly. And he's doing it when it's most needed. So I, I think that's really, really cool. And I think we're going to see that transfer over as we now spill into this incredibly exciting end of the chapter. Now we're going to get an incredibly exciting beginning as we turn over into the summary in a moment for Barristan 2. I mean, to be honest with you, if you thought this one was good, which, I mean, I do, you wait until we get this second one because it's even better and we finally, finally do reach this point we've been waiting for for ages. I mean, this would be the same as when we actually get to the Battle of Winterfell. So much build-up, so much waiting, especially because they were supposed to be in the end of Dance and then they weren't, so there's even more waiting and we've been chomping at the bit to get at them and, well, here we are. Okay, we only have the one preview of the actual battle itself and we've only got a summary of that, but let me tell you, it is worth it. So I'm not going to make you wait any further. Let us get down to it. Let's head over now to Barristan 2. So now we enter the same realm as we did last week with Tyrion 1, the world of summary and memory over actual text. As always, all of these wins chapters come with the caveat of taking everything with a pinch of salt, but the summary only chapters even more so. Yet again, we are just trusting someone's recollection, someone's interpretation of words that George said many, many years ago now. In this case, we're talking eight years, all the way back to 2013, so nothing short by any means. There's not only a lot of room for error, but for change as well. These were a long time ago. And like we mentioned last time with Tyrion, it's even easier to change a summarised chapter than it is one of the ones that has a transcript. Although I doubt George would pull any punches about changing things if he really wanted to anyway. He absolutely would not worry about ripping these previews and our preconceived notions to shreds if he had something new he wanted to put in its place. So all of that is to say, like before, just bear it in mind. Here's a reminder for you. But it's also a reminder that just because it's only a summary doesn't mean we can't have a lot of fun with it. And if we're going to have fun with a summary, it's probably this one. This summary, if anything, gives us even more than Tyrion once did. And frankly, the subject matter is far, far more exciting as we truly delve into the chaos of the battle. We really do get the battle of fire. So with the amount of build-up, the amount we've already talked about it, we know it's a pretty exciting thing to be able to cover. We're very, very lucky. So far, we've had the prep, the view from the outside, or in fact, the middle where Tyrion is concerned, but still on the edge of the action. We've had that build-up, like I say. Now we're going to get the prize, the biggest battle 
we've ever seen in A Song of Ice and Fire is going to be in full throttle and we'll be seeing it through a beloved character's eyes, someone who really, really knows what he's talking about as well as perhaps the single person with the most influence over the whole event. Now I just covered a lot of that back in Barristan 1 a second ago but it's only going to become more and more true with this second chapter and likely several after as well even if we don't have access to them. This, along with many other instances, is where we really have to thank George for deciding to include Barristan as a POV. I personally find it very, very hard to imagine this battle without his viewpoint, even before reading these preview chapters, because they just seem so linked together in my mind, the two ideas. Not just the fact that Barristan is a military man, and is entering his natural state and all of that stuff that we covered earlier on, which is absolutely true, and ever more evident, but also the fact there's just no one more involved in the cause and the reasons for this battle than Barristan Selmy. He's the one 110% in. He's the one truly waving Daenerys' flag from his heart, not just in the hope of preserving what she built for when she returns, but also keeping it alive regardless of her personal condition, protecting her legacy, protecting what she did for the world. He's all for it, so it's amazing to see such from his eyes, and we're truly lucky that we get him at what really is the most important of moments. There just isn't anyone comparable in terms of hitting on all corners of this battle, even with Tyrion being, like we said earlier, obviously the more important character, and I'm sure many would prefer for Daenerys to actually be here in person i really adore that we have barristan for this the opening of the true battle and probably like i say a lot more afterwards as well although yes i am making an assumption there on what chapters we might be getting between barristan 1 and 2 it could very easily be Tyrion 2 it could be one we've not been shown yet I still haven't looked at Victorian so far, so it's a bit hard to guess on that count. And either way, it's all subject to change, so who cares? But for now, this is our first dive into what will probably turn out to be Hell on Earth. And that should probably receive some recognition as well. The amount of build-up for this battle has been insane. Obviously, if you want to go deep dive into the political and socio-economic reasons and causes for how we arrived here, then you can pretty much just point out all of dance in its massive great big block. But even in terms of that actual battle itself, well, it's been a long time now since Yunkai first marched, since they first arrived outside Marine, and we've been teaching on that edge for ages. It was going well, and there was kind of a peace, but then Danny disappeared, it got worse and worse, and even from the really bad point where everyone knew it was going to happen, We've had maybe four Tyrion chapters since then, pretty much all of Barristan's chapters, a couple of Quentin's thrown in, and now Victorian. As we know, the only other comparison that we can make is to the Battle of Ice up at Winterfell, which we don't have the opening for, as we do here today, so really the comparison falls short. The Battle of Fire is, so far, unequaled. So that should also be recognised in terms of the structure of this geographical plot thread, in the structure of both dance and winds, and in the structure of the entire series. This is a huge tentpole moment more than tentpole really that doesn't do it justice even when all is said and done by which i mean the entire series i think we can all agree that this battle is going to be one of the largest we ever see and its consequences will likely still be rippling out by the time the series does close and that's just from a reader's point of view if we look at the in-world stuff just how much this is actually going to affect it's continent-wide it's worldwide probably that's nothing new, we've said it all before, and we could go all the way down the list from the war on slavery to just the setup of this part of the world to how much we care about Masande or what the Dornish Jew are up to or the entire continent in general and the entire industry that Essos works on. We've discussed it so many times. There's a thousand things we could talk about. There are mountains and mountains of plots tied up in what happens with this battle. There's even more consequences than we can imagine at this point that George will probably revel in revealing to us eventually. And we are looking at a defining event that could change the face of the world we've been introduced to. 
Honestly, it, it doesn't come any bigger. And the fact we are now arriving here, even in summary form, should definitely not be understated by any means. This is a rush to finally be covering this, to finally be accessing it. We're super, super lucky that we get to. It's, it's just, I can't do it justice. There's nothing as important we've seen yet, at least not publicly. I know you can argue about stuff at the wall, but that's not as wide reaching yet. Eventually, sure, but not yet. So we have a lot riding on this, just like the characters within. As I said, there's probably a thousand different aspects and connections that we could think about all the way through this chapter as we try to see which way the needle will swing and what will happen to everyone we care about. But let's be honest here, George is just too good for that. The writing, the description of this battle with its many, many moving parts and events that we never will be able to guess at is going to completely suck us in. We're going to find it really difficult to be thinking of these thousand connections because we're simply going to be too absorbed by this amazing battle that George will describe better than anyone else can. We've seen it before. In every book, we know he can do it. George writes a cool battle. A battle that can make your heart ache with sorrow, your brow furrow with tactics, and your voice whisper, wow, when you think no one can hear you. Or maybe you yell it. I often do. Each to their own, but we know the feeling, don't we? And I'll tell you now, we get a huge dose of that here through a mere summary. So congratulations to whoever wrote it in the first place. So according to the uh, old Westeros.org forums, it was someone called Azador. So well done, Azador, if it was you. But let's also imagine what it's going to be like when we finally read the real text, when we have it in our hands for the first time. Oh, it's a bit unbelievable. Maybe we shouldn't imagine that too much because we won't get the actual podcast done, will we? Like I said, most stuff will remain in the background, but obviously some things will remain in our mind the whole time. Our tension over the life of Barristan, that's going to be on red alert throughout. We'll also have our heads up high, looking for signs of crossover with both Tyrion and Victorian. And we'll be doing the same for bunches of different characters that we personally like individually, as well as for any sign of possible portrayal like we discussed earlier on. So there's lots to think about, there's lots to consider, there's lots of fun to be had. What say we start actually having a look at this summary then? Seeing what we can glean from pretty much each reported line. Like I said earlier, this is a longer summary than our first tilt with Tyrion. That one had maybe three or four paragraphs. This one has over ten, I think it's eleven in total. So we're going to have plenty to talk about. I say, in we dive, with all the relevant apparently's and allegedly's that we need to remember. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Let's just get to it. So our summary writer begins by telling us that this chapter pretty much picks up straight after Barristan 1 much, much closer than any two POV chapters normally are, even in the midst of battle. I don't remember any single POV being so close back to back at the Blackwater or the Red Wedding. Literal chapters might have been picking up each other that quickly, but not a POV because the time has usually been filled by whatever's occurred in the interlying chapters, but I, I digress. The point is, we open with Barristan riding through the gates, out of marine and into battle. As if that isn't enough to descend our hearts pounding from the off. And the key fact our writer gives here is that Barry's stomach is twisting as he passes through the gate and beneath the walls. He goes past the point of no return. He leaves the relative safety of Marine behind. He enters the battle. So that links up very well with some of the stuff we were saying earlier in Barristan 1 about it not mattering whether it's your first battle or your hundredth. And it links in fantastically as well with what he's just told his lads about not having shame about what they felt as they were waiting. It turns out he was telling the truth and even the most experienced warriors with the most control and pressure as well out of everyone can feel such things. They still have that, that key moment where maybe just maybe they will break. The key difference is that Barristan is aware of such. He knows it's temporary and before long it's going to be replaced by the thrill of battle, the bloodless and the descending mist that Tyrion and many other characters have described to us in the past. 
and we know Barristan is not a bloodthirsty man, he comes across gentle and considerate, but this is war, and he knows what is required of him, so you can be sure we will see that kind of thing from him in a few moments. Indeed, it seems like such a rush is already upon him, as the next thing we learn is that our beloved Silver is outracing everyone else, because of course she is. She's awesome, and if Carl Drogo is going to say this horse is a good horse, it's probably a good horse. But let's give Barristan credit also. He's urging the Silver ahead, he wants to be at the front of the pack. Now, I'm going to go ahead and assume here because we're not told, but I'd say this is a mixture of Barristan wanting to be the leader, wanting to never ask anything of anyone that he wouldn't do himself. He's very much the opposite of Tywin's school of thought. He wants to be an inspiration to the lads and to his entire army, and he likely has some level of, finally, I get to actually hit these clowns after these long weeks and months or really years in his case, of inaction and waiting. And there's also the element that he needs this first charge, this wave, to hit as hard as possible to cause that maximum damage and give the unsullied the maximum amount of time to get set up. So the faster he goes, the faster the rest of them go, the harder this charge does hit. Specifically, he appears to pick out the Widower, the half-leader of the Stormcrows, as his main competition for getting there first and striking that original blow. So, like the Selsword companies on the other side, for now, anyway, they're not going to be there long. It seems the Stormcrows will be used for their abilities as a cavalry, that manoeuvrability, and especially that speed. Our summary writer next states that the Yunkai are totally unprepared as Barristan's charge nears. Well, that certainly does sound correct, doesn't it, from everything we know about them. We've gone on and on about their lack of organisation and awareness and just their rubbishness in general. I won't repeat it for you here, tempting as it is. You know how I feel about it. They're dopey, that's the main point. And as we know from both Tyrion's chapter and now this summary too, it is the Harridan that is Barry's target. As they near, the Stormcrows are taking up war cries of Dario and Stormcrows fly, which is fairly cool because I don't remember seeing sellsword battle cries at any point before. I'm sure we probably have, but I've forgotten them. Were there some at Griffin's Roost when the Golden Company took over? They probably were. I'm going to have to go back and check. I've already forgotten. But either way, it's a display of the passion of the moment. The Dario one is an interesting choice, given our earlier wonderings about loyalty, but Stormcrow's Fly is also pretty cool, and yet again, it just reminds me of Gandalf. To end this first paragraph, yes, that's just our first paragraph, Barristan apparently thinks he will never again doubt the valour of Sellswords. That also has some significance, because we know that Sellswords have always occupied a certain distasteful opinion in Barry's mind. In the same way he automatically assumes anyone who is a knight to be on the better side, as we most recently saw Quentin and Chums, he automatically assumes any sellsword to be closer to a bad person. Okay, in fairness he's usually right in that opinion, but only in terms of loyalty or their endgame, in valour or bravery. Perhaps Barristan should have already been aware of this on some level, though there are plenty of examples of sellswords choosing the option that will just keep them alive the longest. When it does actually come to battle, some, not all, will go full throttle. Stormcrows are far from angels, but he's probably glad to have them on side right now. He needs them, and, well, there's much worse teammates he has. So, we've got our scene. Barristan and his fellows hounding down towards these defenders of the Harridan, if you can even call them that. They are, somehow, caught by surprise so much so that they don't even have any kind of defence mounted until Barristan and his friends are 30 yards away. Now, for the metric heads like me, that's about 27 metres. So, imagine you're watching the Olympics. You've got your 100 metre track. Barristan has less than a third of it still to cover, and he's coming at full speed before he hits, and this is the point they start playing defence. Usain Bolt is like four steps out of the starting block away, and now's when they want to do something. I mean, these youngish, it is just inexcusable, it really is. How are they not prepared? They started it. They started throwing the corpses. They knew there had to be a retaliation at some point, and they knew this is where they would come to strike. 
They had to know about the Western Gate. They knew this is where the defenders would ride out from and the trebuchets would be the target. Obviously, they did know that to an extent, having placed the legions here. But why are you not on red alert then, at all hours of the day? It smacks of poor leadership and the kind of arrogance we know permeates this Yunkish force. It's ridiculous. Barry deserves the win for that alone, in my opinion. But we also know he deserves the credit for seeing their weakness and taking full advantage. This is what he wanted, dating right back to his last dance chapters. To ride out hard, catch them unprepared, cause maximum chaos to get his best piece on the board, and so far all boxes are ticked. But the Yunkish, they do manage to form some kind of quote-unquote defence and they use it now. By which I mean they basically get their one shot. I did the most basic of Googles here and found that a warhorse going at top speed tends to travel anywhere from 40 to 48 kilometres per hour, apparently. So let's take that as 45 kilometres an hour, which is what I did, with 30 metres to go. I could be entirely wrong in my calculation here, maths is not my strong point, that's my wife's department, but I worked that out as, well, how long do you think that gives the Yunkish to defend? Because I say it's two seconds. Two seconds to get a shot off before that wave hits. So let's all have that big round of applause. Well done, Yunkai, you got one shot off. Congratulations. Still, there are a lot of defenders. A lot of defenders each getting one shot off can be pretty damn dangerous. As we are told now when the air apparently fills with arrows, a Stormcrow Squire goes down, Barry's own white shield is hit. There will surely be many other casualties that either our summary writer or Barristan himself don't realise in the moment. Now we aren't told about this initial moment of first contact, that smack between the two armies that we've seen countless times before on screen. Probably the best one we can think of is the Battle of the Bastards in season six, but there's lots of examples across multiple media. In this case, we might not get it because there just isn't one in the way that we would picture it. George is likely going to paint a more nuanced scene for us. What we are told instead is that Barristan's battle plan enters stage two when three horn blasts are heard and the pit fighters emerge from the Myronese gate as planned. And Barristan apparently sees this, so he's probably not involved in the high-speed charge anymore if he can glance back and see it, but that's by the by. The important part is the pit fighters move. This is our first real moment of tension here in this battle because, as we wondered before, maybe they weren't going to do that. Maybe they were going to send Barry out alone, watch him get swallowed by the Yunkish, or even cut off his retreat. But it seems, at least initially, they have not done that. They have followed through, so we can take a very cautious sigh of relief. That is not to say they won't still abandon or won't still move to kill Barristan in the chaos of battle, but right now they are playing their part. Maybe to earn trust for later, maybe for some other reason, but they're doing it. And Barry lists them as 200 strong now, but making enough noise for 2,000. Okay, that's good, we like that. That's exactly what Barry told them to do. They are showmen, put on a show then. Make the noise, demand the attention, sow the chaos. Job one, tick. And again, we have more evidence that Barry is not involved in the charge at the moment because our summary depicts him almost pausing mid-battle to watch one woman in particular fight in hardly any clothes and with a python around her. It's an almost comical moment. Even in the middle of this chaos, Barry still proves to be Barry when he can't quite believe the sight. Yes, it's still him in there, don't worry. More importantly, he hears the pit fighters' own cries just to mirror our earlier education on Stormcrows. Unfortunately, the majority of them are Lorak and Hisdar. Hmm. Let's 
Not exactly what you want to be hearing. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean Petraeus is on the cards. They can still theoretically see the need for Barristan and his plan, and this being the best option to defend their city, even if their political views aren't aligned. You could even argue that Barry could see these shouts as a good sign, as a sign of ultimate, if misplaced, loyalty. Barristan knows all about that. But overall, just doesn't fill you with confidence. The summary claims that some of them are calling out Daenerys, and maybe that's true, or maybe it's Barristan actually overhearing someone else, or perhaps even just wishful thinking on his part. Whichever it is, his attention is snapped back to the immediate when Larrick the Lash is struck by an arrow in his chest. Ah, our first real worry, and Barristan's too. Is this the first named character to go down, the first of many, we assume? No, luckily, the death count does not start here. Larrick is able to continue. And not only that, he's able to keep his banner, the King's Guard banner, held high as they continue to ride forward. Well done, Larak. So the battle advances, for Barry has now reached his key objective, the Harridan. However, in the time it's taken for that initial charge in whatever foes Barry originally met after his 30 meter sprint, the Junkish side has finally got their act together. A Giscari legion, 6,000 strong, has formed up to defend the trebuchet. 6,000 in a single legion, deployed to defend a single trebuchet. That's a stark reminder of the incredible, mind-boggling numbers involved in this grand battle, especially on the Junkish side. 6,000 just here and now, that's it. They've got everyone else to deal with as well. It really does put it in perspective. Even worse, we find that these ones actually know what they're doing. The Legion extends six ranks deep, and we get an explicit description of the first three. All of them are armed with spears. The first rank is kneeling, jutting their spears upward. The second stand with their spears at waist height. The third at shoulder height. Everyone behind them has throwing spears ready to be launched. And I think you can likely tell from the mental picture, this is a perfect defence against an oncoming charge of cavalry. It presents the maximum points of potential damage to both horse and rider. This would be incredibly hard to break through and would come in an even more incredible cost to the attackers. There's just no way to hit that wall and not suffer catastrophic damage. And we well know that Barry and Silver are first in line to receive it. Barristan gives us the age-old adage about the winkiest link in the chain, even if it is with a Westerosi spin of being about a maester's chain. Hence, he decides he will not try this mighty legion protecting the Harridan, at least not at first. But he doesn't let on immediately. He keeps the charge headed towards those spears, charging, 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 until the very last moment when he turns away, leading his forces to the side and towards a new target, the Herons of the Little Pigeon. <sighs> we all remember these poor bastards, don't we? The slaves who were already tall before they were placed on stilts, and their pink scales and feathers and beaks are assumedly just extras by the little pigeon. And we've covered these guys plenty in the past, but they're pretty representative of the Junkish lords in general as just being complete morons. Oh, I need the tall people and I'll win. It's like asking military strategy from a four-year-old. If there's any part of this battle that actually does beg a belief from a reader, it would be this. It's almost too much to think that anyone would actually be this stupid, or that anyone would go into business with someone who is. It's a waste of soldiers at its very least. Clearly, this is never going to work. The poor sods are on stilts, for crying out loud. We've said it from the very beginning, but now we really get to see the truth of it. And the summary writer literally writes that Barristan identifies the company of the Junkish lords as the weakest of his immediate foes. Yeah, no shit they are. And out of those available, he chooses the herons to the surprise of absolutely no one. This is deserved. These Junkish lords are rubbish. What a shame it's absolutely not the fault of the men about to die. As if their general setup isn't bad enough and likely to lead them to a rout, Barristan proves his tactical brilliance even further with the reveal of another part of his plan. He is attacked now because dawn is rising over the city. The herons will be half blind, 
something else the Junkers should have prepared for. Yes, there is only so much you can do about a sunrise, but you can know your enemy will try to take advantage of it at least. So the Herons are going to be surprised, because remember Barry turned at the last minute. They've got the surprise, they've got the blinding, these Herons have absolutely no fucking chance. And that turns out to be true. In our next paragraph, the writer begins by detailing Barristan slicing through the neck of one of the Herons. There's simply no match. Even hardened, prepared warriors are likely to come up short against Barristan the Bold. A Heron is going to fold instantly. Silver kicks one, and three of them end up on the ground, as they would, wearing bloody stilts and all. Barristan predicted this creep wouldn't only be the easiest to kill, but the most likely to break, and he was correct in that as well, as they are immediately shattered and start trying to run away. The mental image ugh, just fills you with pity, it paints itself, doesn't it? And to no one's surprise, the little pigeon is leading the way in trying to scarper. A battle can be a place where a young person can gain a personal marker in their growth. A next step could be taken in their lives. We've heard about that from many core characters' pasts. We've even seen a few, and we seem to have another here. When the little pigeon is felled by his own foolish clothing choices, it is the red lamb who descends upon him. The pigeon, in typical Junkish fashion, tries his best to buy his life of gold, which apparently earns this response from our young Padawan. I came for blood, not gold. The red lamb then kills the pigeon with his mace, splattering blood all over himself, Barristan, and the silver. Now this is a key moment. For all that I say, Barristan is involved in this battle more than anyone else, which does remain true, especially in terms of looking out for Daenerys, this is also an intrinsic, heartfelt, important act for a former slave such as the Red Lamb. Here he is, in the midst of battle, finally able to actually do something against the people that destroyed his life, that enslaved him, abused him, stole from him. They stole his freedom, his potential, his life, and likely that of his family, his ancestors, and his people as well. Obviously, a very large part of slavery is the idea of, of impotence, of not being able to do anything. How many hours must the Red Lamb and people like him have spent dreaming about being able to strike back against the Tormentors? Not even for freedom or escape, but purely for justice, because that's what they deserved. And how much must that idea have burned at him? Hence, we arrive here, at the bloody blow. It's a specific word I can't quite think of. It will come to me in like 10 minutes after I finish recording, but it's just, it's, it's something along the lines of vindication or gratification or, you know, just something about that, paying it back, getting what you deserve. And like, this isn't enough, killing one person, that's not vindication for a life of slavery, but you get what I mean. Like, this is doing something about it, and that must be how it feels to this young man. How much must this truly mean to the Red Lamb and all the others having the opportunity to do the same across this battlefield? And we can really, of course, only begin to imagine to scratch the surface of that, but surely it is... Okay, well, it might not be the healthiest of options to deal with your pain, but you can see why it's sought after, and it is just. So in general, we have to support as readers. We have to see this as a wave of, well, I'll say it again, vindication. It's happening all across the battle. Simply put, as much as swords and slavers care about their money, none of them can replicate the type of passion that these former slaves feel about striking back against their former captors. It's important here, on the micro level, man on man, it's important on the macro level, the entire point of how this battle came about in the first place, the war on slavery, and the mark of what Daenerys Targaryen has done for the world is living on. On top of that, we must remember that the Red Lamb is a Lazarene, one of the Lamb people, those habitually mocked for being weak or unwarlike. We've discussed before about the Red Lamb's inclusion as a character to show the foolishness of prejudging an entire people and expecting them to all be uniformly similar. So George is now taking the opportunity to show that off. Here's the lamb man, smashing in a skull with a mace, just to shatter your preconceived notions. And I doubt that fact is lost on the young man either, as he earns his first kill as a knight. 
He told us what he was going to do. He wanted this. And Barristan told us the lad was all ferocity. So both have been proven as true here in the heat of battle. Just to round out that paragraph there is the imagery of both Barristan and the silver being covered in the red blood of their white cloak and coat respectively. I don't think it's a particularly deep dive to see the symbolism in that, but I really do hate the image of our pure white silver being marred by such. Unfortunately, they will likely both be covered in far more blood by the day's end. We've just got to hope it remains someone else's and not their own. We reach another stage as the Unsullied begin marching out of the gates of Marine. So Barry is getting that important piece on the board, the game changer. Just as importantly, he joyfully sees that the Yunkai have missed their chance to launch a counterattack with their cavalry, the type he was worrying about earlier on in Barristan 1, knowing that that was the one weakness before the Unsullied could get set up. And we already know why that is. Yes, a huge part of it is general Yunkish stupidity as always, but the larger part this time is that their two big effective cavalries in the Windblown and the Second Sons have just decided to switch sides. So they at least had the idea for a counterattack if we want to be fair to them and recognise that they had a window to do it in, but now they've got no tools left to do it with. Through a whole bunch of reasons, many of which we saw in Tyrion's chapters, the sellswords are abandoning, not only weakening Yunkai by leaving, but by actively fighting against them soon enough as well. Something we won't really get to see in these preview chapters, but will probably happen. Barristan, being smart as he is, recognises the same thing. If there was going to be a counterattack, it would be by those sellsword companies, so where are they? Sometimes that can be its own worry when you can't see the enemy. Does that mean they're doing something unexpected? that they've maybe found a chink in your armour that you didn't recognise? And Barristan doesn't actually even think about the possibility that they've turned, despite that being an earlier hope of his back in the planning stage. Indeed, it's worth noting that he calls the second son specifically treacherous. I mean, they are, but that's worth bearing in mind about how much he'll cling to that notion once he realises that they are switching sides and helping them. If he accepts that, of course, perhaps he won't even believe it, and will move against them to prevent a supposed trick or betrayal. Very, very possible. As many questions as their absence can generate, you just don't look a gift horse in the mouth. The fact is, no one is attacking you unsullied, they are now able to deploy, and one of the biggest risks of the whole battle has flown by. That doesn't mean it gets any easier overall, but it's a lot better than the alternative. The summary sees them completing their lining up outside the city wall, they are out, they are awesome, and they remain unbreakable. As we see, when one of the unsullied is felled by a crossbow, yet no reaction crosses the faces of their brethren. So it's all going fairly well. The Unsullied are here. Barristan sees more slaves falling in the initial charge. This time, he identifies the ones that are chained together. Another ridiculously stupid thing that was only ever going to have this result. It's another careless tossing away of human lives by those in charge. And the chained ones, they can't even retreat, obviously, so they're just being slaughtered. So terrible for them, a very pitiful thing to think about, but going well for Barristan. Yet, as we know from the Song of Ice and Fire, that type of feeling can often be a warning that it's going too well almost. And Barristan certainly seems to think so when Tumco Lowe redirects Barry's focus from the field in front of him over to a suddenly much more full bay than previously. Barry remembers 20 ships out there, now there's as many as 60. And this is where his heart drops. This is the payback of it all going too well, because he thinks sheer bad luck in terms of timing has come to destroy him. Barristan thinks the Volantine fleet has arrived. Now cast your minds back to Barristan and Victorian chapters near the end of Dance. Barristan and Skahaz established that Volantis was going to be a major problem once they arrived, and that if they were caught between them and Yunkai, then it was over, without a shadow of a doubt. That was another big reason for riding out and trying to deal with Yunkai first, to give themselves a fighting chance against Volantis. 
and that was without clarified knowledge about the numbers that Volantis was bringing. Remember, Victorian told us that there were as many as like 600 ships or something stupid like that, each of them full to the brim of warriors. So yeah, it would have absolutely been game over if they'd arrived, and Barry knows it. He might even be thinking of whether sounding the retreat now would be able to save any lives if they can possibly make it back to the walls in time. Luckily, the reader knows this is not the case. Volantis is still out there, they are still nearing in all fairness, although there are plenty of theories out there about what they'll do on arrival, but today is not the day, or perhaps the chapter is not the chapter is a better way of putting it, as Barrison starts to figure out when he realises that some of these ships are crashing into one another. Now would be the very worst time to jump to conclusions, so Barristan calls on Squire Tumco once more, and like Podrick before him, Tumco is asked to relay what banners these new ships fly. Unlike Podrick, Tumco has no idea what any of them mean, but he can sure describe them, and we have the quote here. Squids. Big squids. Like in the Basilisk Isles, where sometimes they drag whole ships down. Barristan replies, where I'm from, we call them Krakens. Mic drop. Here is the moment. Here is the realisation. Here is where the many parts of this battle finally begin to mix. Although, not all of them. Don't forget the dragons are still to come. It's true, we would have gotten a bit more of this if we'd already covered Victorian, but still, this is the real moment where things start changing. Tyrion was aware of both, but not quite affecting anything just yet. Whereas Barry's mind is now worrying about what this means, aside from just being glad that it's not Volantis. This is a complete out-of-the-blue surprise to him. He needs to readjust. Before we get into that though, let's just consider that quote from Tom Colo. It's pretty cool to learn that Krakens, or something like them, allegedly exist out there in the world in other places than just around Westeros, and are apparently common enough or spoken about enough that this young man is aware of them. He's speaking about them in the present tense here, but there's also just that little mention about them pulling ships down beneath the waves as well. And maybe George is just sneaking that in as a teeny tiny nod to whatever Euron is going to get up to if he manages to somehow summon something from the deep. Maybe in Old Town, maybe elsewhere, maybe even here, if certain theories are to be believed. But let's get back to the quick thinking that Barristan has to do. Here is a new force, freshly arrived on the battlefield, clearly aggressive, armed and capable. They could tip the balance, but on whose end? Barristan has zero intel on their intentions, or on anything beyond a mild guess on their numbers, so he has to do a quick battlefield reassessment. He realises that this is obviously House Greyjoy, and most likely the Iron Fleet, but why? And how? Why in the world would they be here of all places in the world? At first he thinks this might somehow be an attack from the Iron Throne itself. He thinks to himself, has Balon joined with Joffrey? Or the Starks? Now obviously he's got no explanation for why Joffrey slash the Iron Throne would have picked now to take on Daenerys, or even bothered to cross half the world to do it in the first place, but it's the only answer he can think of in the moment. But beyond that, let's just look at that sentence. Balon, Joffrey, the Starks. These are all concepts that have been gone from the page for two full books now. This is the kind of thing where, if I asked you if Barristan and Danny should know about Joffrey, then you'd pretty quickly work it backwards and puzzle it out and say, no, of course they don't, there's no way they could. But actually seeing it presented this way, out of the blue, it really surprises you. It really does hit you how long Barristan has been away and how woefully behind they are in terms of Westerosi knowledge. Again, that's not their fault, they're half a world away, they've got no way to know. And they probably still know more about Westeros than Westeros does about Slaver's Bay. Besides, Barristan does remember that, oh yeah, hang on, no, Balon has died, I do know that. But it's still so, so weird to realise he thinks Joffrey still sits the throne, that Rob Stark is alive, that the Starks in general are still around, because the truth of their fates is just something that happened so long ago to us, the reader. It's so ingrained in us that it's just strange to find someone not in the know. Those events were literally halfway through the series, and now that we're entering Wind's territory, we're actually getting into an area where those characters have been gone longer than they were around. 
unless you want to count Stoneheart. So it's just really odd to think about. And that in turn makes you realize another reason that Tyrion is so, so valuable to Team Daenerys when he finally does make contact. Now it's true, there's been heaps and heaps of change since he left as well, and there'll be money more before he returns, but he's still the most up-to-date person in this part of the world. He knows about Joffrey, about Tywin, about the Red Wedding. They are the really important parts that these people could really do with knowing. Imagine, just as a little bit of a sidebar, just as one of the loads of possible effects that Tyrion's knowledge could have, how much this would spur maybe Daenerys, but definitely Barristan, to finally move west. An even younger boy king, Tywin gone, Cersei in charge, most of the kings from the war dead, Barry is going to be a very, very thirsty guy to get moving. At the same time, remember Tyrion does have some very, very up-to-date information, or at least the theory of it, in what he knows about Jonkon, Aegon, and the Golden Company. Others moving towards Daenerys know about it as well, but Tyrion knows the most, and the question of how long he might keep that from Daenerys and her team is probably one we don't give enough credence to. That decision could have a huge effect on what Danny chooses to do and her relationship with Tyrion. She and hers are still completely clueless, remember. But let's get back to Barry. He remembers, okay, there's no more Balon, so instead wonders if it's got something to do with his absent son, Theon. He's still trying to figure out the possible angles, the potential allies that might be moving against him. He's maybe thinking this fleet is now here in the name of Rob Stark. And if that's true, well, are they friend or foe? At least if they were here for the Lannisters or for Stannis, you'd know your place, wouldn't you? He doesn't even think of the uncles of the Greyjoy family. It's another cold realisation on all that's happened since Barry left. He knows nothing about Theon, about Winterfell's collapse or the rise of the Boltons. And Tyrion can't provide all, but at some point he will be filled in and it really will be hard for Barristan to fully accept it all. He's an older man, he's been used to the constants in Westeros longer than anyone else. True, he did witness the great change that was Robert's Rebellion, but when you get down to it, that actually only swaps the places of two houses. Everyone else has always been where they've always been. Now he'll find the Stormlands nearly abandoned by House Baratheon entirely. The Tyrells sit on half the Iron Throne. The Arons have essentially been replaced by Peter Baelish, who also now rules the Riverlands instead of the Tullys. And most of all, the Starks are gone. That will be clearly the hardest thing for him to truly believe, even without his relationship with Ned. But with that relationship, yeah, it's going to be a tough one for Barristan to really understand and get his head round. But that's a look into the future. We still have the present. Barry can theorise all he likes, but there's actual evidence materialising in front of him. The Ironborn, no matter who leads them, are coming ashore, and they are fighting the Yunkish. Barry can scarcely believe his luck. He thought this would be an extra enemy to deal with. Now it appears they might actually be an ally, a much needed ally. That is just as confusing, but it's way more welcome. As of the sellswords, he's got no time to waste looking at those gift horses' mouths. If it's in your favour, run with it, as Barry does now, when he declares that the Ironborn are on their side, and decides to fill in the gap with them as the explanation for why they didn't have to fight the sellswords, because he believes they're fighting on the docks instead. Again, we know he's wrong, but he's not far wrong. That is what certain Yonkish commanders wanted the Second Sons, at least, to do. So good instincts from Barry again. And here our summary closes by describing Barristan Selmy as gleeful, which is pretty nice to hear. It's not something we get that often from him. And he's got to be pretty over the moon about this surprise. By no means does this instantly win the day or save everyone or solve all your problems, but it's a pretty big relief and you can see why he's got this reaction in the moment while emotions are running high. The preview ends with this quote. It's like Baylor Breakspear and Prince Maker, the hammer and the anvil. We have them. We have them. And end scene. So, back-to-back -back thrilling endings of Barristan's chapters. Even though we know it's Victorian, even though we know it doesn't just end the battle straight up, it's very hard not to get caught up with his relief and celebration at the end here. As discussed, this couldn't possibly mean more to him. 
He's put his heart and soul into the planning, and even with all his expertise and the Junkish mistakes, it was still a long shot. This might be the first time he's really allowing himself to believe that they could win, and we want to believe along with him. We want to seek the overall victory. We want to seek good news for him personally. We want to get caught up in the rush. This would have been a hard, bloody chapter, probably much more so than the summary itself is getting across. So I think this moment will probably hit even harder when it comes to a true reading with the actual text in front of us. And George most certainly knows what he is doing with these endings in terms of getting our motors going. In making this battle flow by so seamlessly, even with all the different parts, it's just amazing. Now before we go any further, let's also just highlight the beginning of that final quote, the Baylor Breakspear and the Prince Maker, the idea of the hammer and the anvil. Well, this is actually quite timely for us just by happenstance because you'll remember last week I told you all about how I was lucky enough to guest on a patron episode of Girls Gone Canon and we were covering the Sworn Sword. A big part of the Sworn Sword is the character Eustace Osgrey like we discussed in Tyrion's chapter. And at one point in that tale, Sir Eustace, he describes the Battle of the Red Grass Field, that huge, incredibly important battle from the Blackfire Rebellion. Specifically, he talks about the idea of the hammer and the anvil, which was pretty much the name for how that battle ended. So that's pretty cool that just that happens to have turned up at the same time. That was something we were thinking about already. It is something we're going to cover later on when we get to DNA ourselves. So I'm not going to go too far into a deep dive here. It's not a massive tangent, which we definitely could fall down. But just to give you a very brief description of what Barrison's talking about here, what he actually means by the hammer and the anvil. Well, in the Battle of the Red Grass Field, without going through all the major players, I'm sure you know at least who Brendan Rivers, Blood Raven is, and who Damon Blackfire is. Well, Blood Raven, he kills Damon and his sons. That's the sign of the end, basically. The rebels, the Blackfire army, they begin to flee. That's when it kind of breaks down. But Bitter Steel, he's able to kind of turn that into one final push, one final chance to change everything. He fights his own battle with Blood Raven. But this is the point when Baylor Breakspear, Prince Baylor Breakspear, who is another key character in DOV stories, he appears at the rear of the rebels with his Stormlords and his Dornish men. He comes from behind and he shatters their line and basically wins the battle because Makar, Baylor's brother, the one who'd been in charge of the battle really, he was the Targaryen commander, he was in charge of the shield wall, he'd been taking care of things up till then. Well, he rallied forward then, seeing what was happening, and they basically squashed the rebels between them. Makar was the anvil, Baylor was the hammer, hence why Barristan is bringing it up here, because it's a very similar thing. There's now enemies on two sides for the Yunkish, and that's probably what Tyrion was thinking about as well. I didn't think he thought about it in the same terms as Barristan, but it's the same thing. He realised what he was between, he made moves to get out of it, because that's a pretty bad position to be in. So that was probably a pretty bad explanation by me, to be honest, but we'll cover that at a later date. It's just a cool little dip back into history. You maybe even have to wonder if there's a little bit of a childhood hero connection going on there for Barristan. These are the tales he would have grown up on. That's why he's mentioning it here, because he's of the age where that was the thing everyone was talking about. Baylor Breakspear had a pretty good reputation from this act. So yeah, maybe there is. But I just like that they all mentioned there. That's pretty cool. Look forward to getting to that in greater detail later on. Back to what we're actually doing. Now that we've established that rush at the end and allowed Barry his much-deserved cool moment, we can look at the situation a bit more critically. Essentially, nothing is ever this simple. The battle is not over, there's fighting to be done, there are losses to be felt, including Barristan Steel. He's out there, in the middle. 
We still don't know about the pit fighters and their intentions. We've still got all that Scarehaz stuff that could potentially come later on. And it's very tempting to go back through it all, but I think you know what I'm talking about. We'll talk about that later anyway. For now, let's imagine they've moved past that and Barristan at least meets the Ironborn and discovers some truth about what's going on. We can assume that's probably going to happen on some level, even though the variables, the many, many different possibilities of how it will come about are well beyond our comprehension. And as I say, this might cross a bit with our still-to-come coverage of Victorian's chapter. I haven't had a chance to actually look at that one yet, so I'm not sure how far it covers. I don't think it gets anywhere near this. But apologies if we do cross over at all. But let's just look at it as if Barristan survives long enough to realise what's happening and who is here. Ironborn get ashore, as we assume they're going to. Barristan will, likely quite quickly, realise that the Ironborn are not here just to be good friends and help Marine out of his sticky spot. No, they are here on a raid, essentially, just with one very specific target, one that happens to not be here. Now before that, he's probably going to clock who he's dealing with, Victarion, a person well known to Barry. Whether they've ever met face to face is a bit harder to tell, I'm not sure on that one, but both were a part of the Greyjoy Rebellion, of course. Barristan led the assault on Old Wick, Victarion burned Lannisport and then got chopped up in the Straits of Fair Isle. So there's a history there, even if it is a long way back. Other than military record, I doubt Barristan knows all that much about Victarion personally, but he's going to know he's bad news. Ironborn normally are anyway, Balon was, Victarion's general demeanour is likely known, or Barristan could maybe just spend 10 seconds with him and work it out for himself if he likes. And let's not forget, this is a, uh, a completely lost-it Victarion getting off his ship and onto the Miranese soil. He's a man who has truly fallen into madness. He's been spouting all that religious rubbish. He's honestly cracked if we remember his last chapters, and I'm sure we will see that in Victorian 1 from Winds. Even without that, I think Barristan would know that he has to be very, very wary about Victorian's intentions and all that he's up to. But once he comes ashore, probably not being particularly coy about his intentions anyway, Barristan's hackles are going to be going straight up. We don't know enough about Victarion's part in this battle to know what will come first, but whether it is the blowing of the horn, the attempt and possible achievement of controlling the dragons, or just his announcing, hi, I'm here to take Daenerys, it's not going to sit well with Barristan either way, is it? These guys could switch back to enemies incredibly quickly. Even if there's kind of an unspoken agreement at the beginning of, hey, let's deal with these Yunkish idiots first, well, when that's done, the two sides are still going to be diametrically opposed. Victarion will still want something that Barristan is sworn to protect. Barristan will be in the way of Victarion's reason for being here, aside from the dragons, and they are just honestly too much of a destabiliser to almost consider at this point. We did speak before about the possibility of the horn working though, Victarion gaining one or two dragons. Maybe he uses them to roast the Yunkish. Maybe he flies away on one to search for Danny. Whatever. The timing potential is just endless to be honest, we can't really set it apart. Perhaps Victarion turns the dragons on Barristan and his forces. Perhaps the dragons get involved even before the horn is blown and are burning left, right and centre like we guessed at the end of Barristan's dance arc. We really don't know, but at some point Victarion is going to make his purpose known and these two men will clash. I don't think either of them have it within themselves to be sneaky about it. Victarion isn't going to pretend to be chummy just so he can get close to Danny. Barristan isn't going to go along with the idea that Victarion can have her just in order to buy time. That's just not going to happen. Barristan will see this as yet another unworthy suitor to defend Daenerys from, though he will still stare at all those ships a bit longingly. They could be useful, remember? This is another threat to his queen and to all she's built here. And this is all forgetting that those Volantine fleets are coming this way, hot on the heels. So maybe there is a conjoined effort to build a defence against them as well. But Victorian really wants to be in and out before they arrive. So we have to ask how he's going to react when he's told Daenerys isn't there. And that might link to whether the horn works or not as well. If he gets a dragon, maybe he'll be satisfied and leave with that. Or he might go searching, or he might even wait. We don't know. 
I suppose there is a situation where Victorian takes one or both dragons and essentially holds Marine hostage. If he threatens to burn the city and its people, none of whom mean a single thing to him, Marston would have very few options. In fact, he might only have one, a duel. Yes, it's just tempting to hope that that horn won't work or that Victorian will get himself roasted, especially if he tries to gain more than one dragon, because we know that's not supposed to work, you're only supposed to be able to ride one, but we can't rely on that instead. We're going to have to rely on Barry, probably. Whatever Victorian has become, he is still a warrior. That is a core part of his makeup. He respects strength and fighting ability, he believes it is the basis of his entire life, and I think he would find it very, very difficult to turn down such an offer from Barristan, the most famous warrior of them all. Let's not deny it would make for quite the spectacle if these two were to go at it. We sure as hell would like to see it, even if we're not so fond of the potential results. Then again, it would make for some quality timing if this is what Daenerys were to fly back into, just as the thing is about to start, or maybe even finish. The warrior aspect, the respect between them, I'm sure it's going to play a role in their dealings, whatever happens. And I also just think it would be quite like Victorian slash the Ironborn to come into an already vastly complicated knot and just blow it all away because he just simply doesn't care. Screw your harpies, I don't care who his dar is or glass of this or what what what, you're all the same to me and I just want one thing, Daenerys, and I'll do whatever it takes to get it. So yeah, pretty potential there. At the same time, Barristan, he knows about the Ironborn. He's not going to be too happy about them being here in general. He knows what trouble it could invite by allowing them into the city in the first place, so the chances of an alliance or teaming up, pretty low, because these are Reavers, and they're Reavers with their battle blood running high. They've been waiting for some prizes after a stupidly long journey, so if they do come in, probably not going to go well for Marine, not at all. And again, well, if Victorian is holding a dragon above you, Barristan might have to let them in. It's just not something you want to picture, is it? I suppose the only comfort, if you want to call it that, well, not really. It's more just of an add-on that if they do go in and start raiding and pillaging and sacking, well, those exploits might end up spreading the pale mare between themselves very, very quickly. Maybe then they hop back onto a ship, it gets even worse, but then they could bring it back onto Westeros. So that's not actually a win for us at all, as much as they might suffer. To be honest, we could go on for hours and hours about possibilities just between these two. It's very, very tempting. I have further notes, but we're going to have to move on. Because this is very far from a two-man thing going on here. We've got hordes of other characters surrounding them that could have major roles very easily, especially as they come into contact with each other. And though I'm not going to go over it again here, because I think we did detail it enough at the end of Dance, the Skahaz thing... The idea of what he could do to the cupbearers and everyone else, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just head back to that last Scraps and Scrolls for Dance, it's all in there. Well, that general idea, it could still easily happen with Victorian's arrival in a number of different ways, and if it does, it will be one of the hardest reads to witness Barristan's reaction to it. It would destroy him easily. But moving past that, because we've discussed it before, let's get back to the idea of the many, many people about to be thrown together. Likely, they meet in victory, although I think we have to apply the term very very loosely don't be fooled by these preview chapters so far it all looks pretty straightforward and going far too well there's no way it's remaining that way you don't get that level of build-up from george for this kind of payoff no 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 that's not what winds of winter is about we know this is going to be his big this is what you've been waiting for thing by the end this will be a scene of devastation unlike anything we've yet witnessed i'm 99 sure especially when the dragons get involved so yes, they likely meet in something resembling a temporary win, or at least a lull, but that doesn't mean they will be void of conflict. Let's remember some of the other characters that will be getting involved in one way or another at some point. Last week with Tyrion, we spoke about the two sellsword companies aiming for the one group of hostages, and the possible conflicts we could have going on there, which are many. Well, that only increases should all parties survive and get to meet Barristan and Victorian. 
Just to cross in a couple of names off our list, let's start with Dario. Barristan's not fond of him, as we know, but he'll tolerate him for Danny's sake. We said Jorah might have some words for him, but what about Victorian? He wants to take Danny away and marry her. Previous suitors would probably not be in his best books, would they? And let's face it, the mere image of Dario and how he looks and how he acts would very likely drive Victorian to a rage because it's, that's just the most anti-Ironborn thing ever, isn't it? The image of Dario Naharis. What about Jorah Mormont? If we want to talk about love rivals resistant to welcoming another competitor, let's talk Jorah Mormont. If we want to talk about people with a history of the Ironborn, let's talk Jorah Mormont. In fact, let's talk about him twice. The Mormonts of Bear Island have historically fought against the Ironborn, but Jorah himself was the first one through the breach in the walls of Pike back in the Rebellion, an act that earned him his knighthood and thus formed the basis for who he is. So maybe we were wrong about Barristan. It could very, very easily be Jorah who challenges Victorian to an official duel. Or maybe it's not even that official. Maybe they just end up fighting straight away. It's certainly an interesting possibility, isn't it? The chance for two of the biggest assholes in the series to do themselves in, fighting over a woman that neither of them have any business being near. But imagine if Jorah won and ended up taking the horn for himself. There's just something pretty hilarious about that image to me. That ultimate attempt to win Daenerys by trying to take a dragon. Perhaps such a try would end up similar to how Quentin's did. Or maybe Jorah plays a large role in winning Marine back for Daenerys during the battle, but then loses his life to Victorian afterwards and never actually gets back to Daenerys. Yeah, there's some irony there. That would be quite George-like, I think. What about Tyrion? We haven't even got to Tyrion, the largest character of everyone gathered. I'm going to guess he's not just going to be standing by quietly watching everyone. In fact, he will likely be the most interested person in Victorian's appearance. We've already spoken before about the potential meeting of Barristan and Tyrion, so I won't repeat that now, but what about Victorian? Will he become a target of Tyrion's, especially if the dragons are involved? Will Tyrion try to manipulate him and use him as a next step up? Let's not kid ourselves, if the battle has been particularly horrible for Tyrion, if he's lost Penny for example, then maybe Victorian will align much more of his current mood. I mean, Tyrion does still want very, very harsh revenge against uh, Westeros and his family. Well, he knows the Ironborn history as well. He knows he could definitely use them. They could definitely achieve that. So maybe he tries to get buddy-buddy with Victorian. But perhaps? Well, if it was going to happen, maybe this is where Tyrion loses his tongue for trying such. Maybe he should not be trying that with Victorian, who you really can't trust for anything right now. So that's another possibility. And on top of that, don't forget, we've mentioned before, Tyrion's going to see Makoro here, and that's going to be pretty significant. That's another person we've not even mentioned, Makoro and all his intentions, what he's really up to with Victorian and the dragons and Daenerys herself. There's just so, so many things to think about, many of which, okay, we might be able to address in the other chapter, but even then, who knows? We're hoping we do find out what he's been up to with Victorian and the weird arm and everything like that. He's probably going to give us some good insights with his fire visions. And at least he's going to be presenting as on the sides of Daenerys. So maybe Barristan links up with him as well. And let's not forget Marwyn. He's got to get in there somewhere. There's going to be this great glut of characters. Just a huge mishmash of characters, both POV and non-POV. When we actually get to it, we won't have seen this thing for quite a while, really. But it's a mark of what is to come in Winds and especially Dream. This, this is what I mean by it being a tentpole. Not just in the military fashion, in terms of who dies and what happens in this battle, but just what we're going to see throughout the rest of this book into Dream, all these people coming back together. This is very, very different from what we've had in the mid-main part of the series. So this is going to be our first taste of that, really. And I mean, there's just too much to consider, isn't there? I keep saying it, but it doesn't get any less true. We've got the major characters. We've got the relationships. But let's not forget what Barristan's true aim is here. If we can kind of wind it back in to Barristan himself, that's who we're supposed to be talking about. He does have these responsibilities still. Whoever comes, whatever the situation might be, 
however devastating it all is, he's still got this city to care for. He probably still has a harpy to fight. Most importantly, he's still got a people to keep free and keep alive for his queen. Whether she comes back or not, that really doesn't change his mission uh, to a certain point, to be honest with you. So let's not lose sight of those larger commitments, those larger responsibilities. The actual people of Marine and the people who will have really, truly suffered through this battle. He's got to look after them. He's got to, he's got to get them back on their feet, probably prepare them for another battle. If he thinks about Volantis or whatever happens with Tarion, this isn't going to end. There's really not going to be a clean-cut finish to this battle. There's so probably going to be several stages, and we're hoping that Barristan makes it through all of them. Very possible he doesn't, but he's got those, he's got enemies, he's got Daenerys itself to think of. I feel that we've barely mentioned the dragons, to be honest, and what I'm actually going to do, most likely, yeah, I'm going to do it right here, is I'm going to cut things off now, because we do still have one more uh, Battle of Fire chapter to cover in Victorian 1. I know we've done things a little out of order, we should have done him first, but that's how it's landed. And because that's only one chapter, instead of Tyrion had to, Barristan's now had to, what we'll do is we'll put on a section at the end of that, seeing as that's the last Slaver's Bay chapter for us, and we'll have a big cover-up of everything not talked about here in terms of possible futures and what happens with the dragons what happens with everything else these many many pretty much endless possibilities of different futures we'll have a big talk about that at the end instead of squeezing on here because i think i've given you enough to think about and i want to really focus on barristan these two chapters that i adore from this guy i really like his dance arc his winds arc off to a flying start i assume it's only going to get better that doesn't necessarily mean better in plot. It could be very, very difficult in plot. Again, if that Scarhouse thing is true, which we will cover again, just for anyone who's missed out. If that's true, I mean, it'll be a terrible chapter to read in terms of emotion, but I can only imagine the writing would be superb. Then we've got everything that comes after with this huge potential, likely decision about Aegon and his reaction to what Daenerys is. What is Daenerys going to be like when she comes back? We've not spoke about that we've really only spoken about the aftermath of the battle but the further possible storylines of winds of winter i mean the, the whole book isn't just going to be about this battle for this area there's going to be movement whether it comes in the middle or it comes at the end there's going to be advancements and well we'll have some time to talk about that but for now let's say goodbye to barristan let's say goodbye to these two preview chapters which again i think are just amazing we're very very lucky to have covered them i'll say goodbye to you for now thank you again for coming along and talking <laughs> a lot about barristan a lot more than i thought we would talk about barristan to be honest considering you know we had one summary but we really got a lot in there and we're still not even finished so that'll have to come another day remember what i said at the beginning these huge huge pieces of news all three of them the aisle apparently now has three heads doesn't it we have the 100 questions of the winds of winter that is coming free we have scraps and screens a game of thrones rewatch that could we take on a bigger project not really and we have a co-host coming aboard further details are coming at the weekend Please do hype and share and all those kind of things. That would be lovely. We want to roll out the welcome mat for this guest, for this co-host. Again, how regular it becomes and whether it's permanent or whether it's just for a little while. Who knows? We'll see. We'll work on that later. For now, let's just be incredibly welcoming here on the aisle. We'll talk about that later. Thank you. Thank you again. This has been Barristan 1 and 2, Scraps and Scrolls. The next Scraps and Scrolls, I'm not sure what date it's going to be out. There's a little, few things happening in the next few weeks. But I believe I'm writing saying it is Elaine 1 slash 
Sansa. So you know we're going to have a bunch to talk about because when's the last time we spoke about Sansa? Absolutely ages ago. And this is our really just one link into that entire area of the plot, the entire area of the world of Westeros. So there's going to be piles and piles of things that we need to remember and talk about and theorize on. And yes, I'm fairly confident in saying I can't even remember off the top of my head the particular plot I mean I can a little bit but but there'll be lots of things that escape me but I'm gonna say I'm gonna put my money down say we might even talk some Peter fucking Baelish that will return it's been a long time not long enough but it's been a long time so that'll be next time hopefully you will join us there thank you for joining us today we will see you next time here on the aisle thanks everyone